You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 534. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at former APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 25th of August, 2022. In today's episode, an Ethiopian Airlines crew falls asleep and overflies their runway. A Cessna pilot talks about his emergency landing after running out of fuel. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the battle above the song. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 534 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, the pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me from his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, everybody. Isn't it great to be uh, doing the show at a civilized time of the day? Yeah. I think so. (laughs) Yeah, we like to mix it up. All right, and also joining us... Hey! From his studio in Air Capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to be back with you. Great to have you with us again. And also, from a place to stand and a place to grow, in her studio in Toronto, Ontario, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. Great to have you with us. And the rest of our crew will be joining us later on in the show. And See you later, guys. Okay. And here we go to the news. Stand by for news. All right. Uh, This item is an incident uh, from the Aviation Herald. Uh, PIA, Pakistan International Airlines Boeing 777-200 registration Alpha Papa Bravo Golf Juliet performing flight 211 from Islamabad, Pakistan to Dubai, United Arab Emirates was en route at flight level 360, about 170 nautical miles northeast of Dubai, United Arab Emirates, in Iranian airspace, when 
ATC cleared the aircraft to descend to flight level 200. Uh, PIA uh, Pakistan International Airlines Airbus A320. Why am I reading this again? <laughs> Do let us know if you work uh, it out. It's another. Okay, I got it. It's the, the other airplane involved here. Uh, another Pakistan International yeah, Airlines, an Airbus A320-200, registration Alpha Papa Bravo Lima Whiskey, performing flight 286 from Doha, Qatar, to Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, was en route at flight level 350, about 160 miles northeast of Dubai. Okay, so we have two... PIA jets, uh, one at uh, flight level 350, one at flight level 360. Uh, PIA reported both aircraft received TCAS resolution advisories. PK-211 to climb, ADSB data show the aircraft climbed to flight level 363 due to the TCAS rate, um, resolution advisory, RA. So about 300 feet above its, um, was that? Yeah. Uh, above its uh, cleared to altitude, flight level 360. And uh, flight 286 to descend. ADSB data showed the aircraft temporarily descended to flight level 346. So they descended about 400 feet. After air traffic control had cleared uh, flight 211, flying at flight level 360 to descend to flight level 200, directly into the flight tra trajectory of. Um, Flight 286. PIA is talking to Iranian authorities to investigate the occurrence. Uh, on August 14, 2022, Iran's CAO released their final report, concluding the probable cause, uh, causes of the serious incident were uh, based on radar service within control area, CTA, the controller's instructions and clearances for both traffic, traffics, Hmm. were correct, and the cause of TCAS RA serious incident was the pilot's misunderstanding, leading to mistakenly uh, Flight 211 commenced descent without receiving any clearance from Tehran ACC controller. Uh, according to the received evidence, such as radar data, flight plan, and voice communication, the Flight 211 flight plan was against Traffic Orientation Scheme, TOS, which was issued and inserted into uh, in Iran AIP. Uh, what I'm not sure what that stands for. Um, looks like some kind of a, a flight um, clearance, uh, flight path clearance. Uh, therefore, AIP. I can't remember exactly what it is in it. Uh, an, uh, something publication. Oh, okay. I'm thinking. Um, okay. Therefore, the controller instructed Flight 211 to proceed directly to Patat to modify flight route to some extent. Later, when the longitudinal separation between the two aircraft uh, declined by 10 nautical miles while there was 1,000 feet of vertical separation, Flight 211 commenced descent to flight level 200 without receiving any prior descent clearance. Aeronautical Information Publication. Aeronautical Information Publication, according to our control room. Thank you, Liz. Um, okay. Simultaneously, the opposite traffic on reciprocal track, Flight 286, received TCAS RA descent command and descended down to flight level 346. The pilot of 286 declared TCAS RA to Tehran uh, ACC, and when he was cleared of intruder traffic, returned to flight level 350. On the other hand, during passing flight level 357, 
Uh, flight 211 received a TCAS RA climb command and returned to flight level 360 as soon as possible. The pilot of flight 211 did not report TCAS RA to Tehran ACC. When two aircraft were cleared from each other, the uh, flight 211 descended to flight level 200 and was handed over to United Arab Emirates radar for further descent. Okay, so honestly, I'm all confused. Uh, maybe, uh, Captain Nick, you can help us understand what happened here. Yeah, uh, having flown in this area a lot, um, there are some handoffs uh, that occur, and um, the one sometimes between uh, United Arab Emirates airspace, which is to the south, and Iran's airspace, which is to the north. They're, they're not sometimes brilliant, but uh, um, normally it works pretty seamlessly. So we've got one of the aircraft uh, heading south uh, at flight level 360, and the other heading north at flight level 350. So and the northerly one's just a little bit lower. And uh, the the one that's coming south, which is uh, two, uh, no, uh, that's right, 211. Uh, they've been given, or supposedly, according to um, the information from Simon, they were given a descent to flight level 200, which meant that they were going to descend through the altitude of the northern bound aircraft. Um, and apparently they commenced that descent. And because the two aircraft were very close to each other and uh, their altitudes were merging, uh, their TCAS system, uh, which is was quite honestly a, a god save in this situation, yeah. alerted both aircraft to take uh, avoiding action, and they did. Uh, and they stayed apart, which is fantastic. But um, reading on, it appears that um, the Iranian controller says he didn't give him clearance. That's what the conclusion is. But And I, I'd love to know what information Simon has that allowed him to say that um, ATC cleared the aircraft to descend to flight level 200 because in the CAO's report, they're denying that. They're saying that um, there was a misunderstanding and they had not given descent clearance. So uh, it, it, it's a difficult one without actually hearing the RT. Um, we're going to find it hard to understand. The, the fantastic thing about this is TCAS works. It saves lives every time you get an RA. There is a distinct possibility that had that system not been on board, um, the crews, uh, you know, the aircraft would have got close enough to have caused an, an appallingly tragic accident. Um, but also, I'm just going to make a comment here, you know, Whenever I see an aircraft symbol on TCAS, um, I'm always watching it if it's going to come close to me. And if it's only a 1,000 feet away, I'm going to pay attention to it because that information is generally displayed all the time on our TCAS displays, which are nowadays usually on our main navigation displays. So they're, they're right there in front of us, easy to see. And uh, if you've just been given a descent clearance... Uh, and you see an aircraft that's only a thousand feet below, you know, ten or fifteen miles ahead, converging with you. The first thing I'm going to do is question my descent clearance from air traffic, and certainly I'll point it out to the pilot flying. I say, "Hold your descent a minute. Can you see that guy?" There, there's a, and I'll also try and acquire that aircraft visually so that I can be absolutely certain that uh, when we've gone past him, we're there's no other traffic around to um, 
to descend because you're, you can see an aircraft on TCAS sometimes and you look out and you visually acquire an aircraft, you assume it's the same machine. It may not be. It may be one that's a few miles away or a few thousand feet in difference in altitude and you've picked up, visually picked up the wrong airplane. So um, a, f a few lessons here to be learned, albeit they're the same lessons we've learned many times in the past when people um, misinterpret it. But um, luckily, the TCAS uh, piped up and you get these oral warnings uh, that you've got traffic uh, approaching, uh, just that big word, traffic, traffic. And we're supposed to reduce the range on our displays to ensure we can see the target and then try and visually acquire. And then if um, you are going to converge with him and break the minima that TCAS has programmed into it, then you're going to get instructions on to climb or descend or um, one of those options, perhaps maintain your altitude so that you um, safely pass clear of them. So thank the Lord for that. Because um, we're talking about a Pakistan, and I'm not going to try and make too much of this, but an aircraft from Pakistan and flying over Iran. Neither of those countries have a fantastic uh, safety record when it comes to uh, aviation. So uh, I think we have to bear that in mind when we analyze this. Uh, if this were over the United States or over Europe, they, it may not have happened. Um, but um, sometimes the standards in certain parts of the world uh, aren't quite as high as, um, you know, places where there's a lot of investment into uh, aviation safety. Well, you know, the bottom line, that's why I was confused, because it seemed that Simon's narrative differed from the official final report narrative. And I'm thinking they must have received clearance to descend. Otherwise, why else would they have received a TCAS RA, right? I mean, yeah, the it, thousand foot I, separation should not have triggered the uh, the RA. That's true. The only thing I can think of is perhaps they had a uh, constraint further on down their route oh. of flight level two hundred, and perhaps they were just doing a, a descent as we might do into, say, somewhere like Los Angeles when you're cleared oh. to descend via an approach, which means you can automatically yeah. commence a descent and adjust your altitude without a specific clearance right um that uh, that might have been in the cruise head or the controller might have said expect flight level 200 mm -hmm. at a, a certain waypoint um and then they just went ahead and started the descent. Yeah. yeah and they they kind of assumed that was an actual clearance when it was just notification that that's your profile hmm. so a couple of things there that might have gone on i can't think of anything else but uh yeah Stunning scenery around that part of the world. Absolutely fabulous. Oh, and, that must have been uh, why. They were like so... Yeah, they were probably just gazing out at those amazing mountains. <laughs> I think I'm going to get a little bit closer, take a closer <laughs> look. I'm going to go ahead and start to set yeah. into but the path. But having said that, it can be a little bit busy going into United Arab Emirates because there are a lot of FIR crossing points, a lot of people climbing out on the same route and while you're trying to descend in. So... You've got to keep your wits about you. Okay. Uh, a TUI, TUI Airways Boeing 737-800 registration Golf Foxtrot Delta Zulu Foxtrot performing flight 1665 from Palma, Mallorca in Spain to Aberdeen, South Carolina. 
There is an Aberdeen, South Carolina. <laughs> I've looked it up. I need to get a little screenshot of it. <laughs> it's not yeah, an official absolutely. town, but it's. I found a place that said Aberdeen, and it was outside of uh, Kakalaki, South Kakalaki. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Aberdeen, uh, Scotland, uh, UK, with 67 passengers and six crew, was on approach to Aberdeen's runway 34 in instrument meteorological conditions, IMC. When descending through 5,000 feet, the air traffic controller advised the crew they might need to abort their, their approach. A search and rescue helicopter about to depart would receive priority once airborne. In this case, they would be required to climb to 3,000 feet at runway heading. The aircraft, okay, so they're, they're given warning. That's very likely that they're going to have to execute or, or discontinue their approach. Uh, the aircraft established on the ILS approach to runway 34 was descending through 2,600 feet on single autopilot. Okay, just a reminder, this is a 737. Um, flaps at 15 degrees and gear down. ATC instructed the crew to abort the approach. Climb to 3,000 feet. Okay, they're at 2,600 feet, so only a couple hundred feet here. Uh, turn left, heading 270. The crew pressed toga and initiated the climb and the left turn. Just before reaching 3,000 feet MSL, the aircraft began to descend again, reaching up to 3,100 feet per minute sink rate. Tower controller noticed the aircraft descending again and noticed, notified approach control, who contacted the crew just as the crew was pulling the nose up and returning the aircraft into a climb at 286 knots indicated airspeed. Uh, the speed selected by the crew was 200 knots. Uh, the aircraft leveled off at 3,000 feet. The crew re-engaged the autopilot. The aircraft positioned for another approach to Aberdeen and landed safely on runway 34. The uh, AAIB released their special bulletin stating that the Boeing 737-800 is a dual autopilot Cat 3-capable aircraft. Normal procedures, as outlined by the manufacturer, require the use of a single autopilot on an ILS approach unless the intention is to conduct a Cat 2 or Cat 3 approach and landing. Automatic go-arounds are only available from a dual autopilot approach. The autopilot flight director go-around mode is engaged by pressing the takeoff go-around switches. Pressing either of the switches when the engagement criteria are met will disconnect the single autopilot if it's connected and place the flight directors in go-around mode. Okay, so the autopilot's off, you're manually flying the airplane, but you do have guidance uh, on the uh, flight directors. It will command a 15-degree nose-up pitch until the aircraft reaches a programmed rate of climb. Flight director pitch commands then target airspeed for each flap setting based on a maximum takeoff weight calculation. The Air Accidents Investigation Branch annotated that the pilots of Golf Foxtrot Delta Zulu Foxtrot, like many other pilots, had not flown for significant periods during the 18 months before this incident. Although the investigation has not established a link between this incident and a lack of recent line flying, it's clearly a possibility. The investigation is ongoing. Okay. Now, uh, just recently, August 18th, the AAIB released their final bulletin, concluding the probable cause of the serious incident was the crew were instructed to go around by ATC, after initially climbing towards the missed approach altitude, the aircraft began descent. Uh, the descent continued for 57 seconds, reaching a minimum of 1,565 feet above ground level before the aircraft was recovered to a climb. A combination of an unexpected large increase in thrust when the go-around was initiated, instructions from ATC to fly a heading, a lack of manual pitch trimming, 
and the changes in the flap configuration caused the crew to become overloaded, allowing the aircraft to descend unnoticed for a significant period. I think it was close to a minute, 57 seconds, actually. That's a long time. That's a long time. Um, I mean, I'll I'll save my my commentary. Uh, Both pilots had experience significant periods away from flying the aircraft type during the uh, pandemic. Uh, The aircraft descended from close to 3,000 feet uh, above mean sea level for 57 seconds before a climb was reestablished. And this represented a significant deviation from the crew's expected flight path. Yeah, duh. The rate of descent peaked at 3,100 feet per minute before the aircraft began to climb, having descended to 1,565 feet. Okay, this is just stuff that we've already talked about. Um, During the descent and subsequent recovery, there was an uncommanded and undesirable increase in airspeed to 286 knots that was not corrected in a timely manner. Having pressed the toga switches once for the go-around, the crew expected the engaged autothrottle to select power for a climb rate of between 1,000 to 2,000 feet per minute. However, the aircraft was above 2,000 feet radio altitude, and as a result, unexpected by the crew, the power advanced towards the full go-around N1, so pretty high power. With the underslung engines and at an approach speed for the flap selected, slow, This large increase in power meant that the aircraft pitched up significantly and climbed towards the selected altitude of 3,000 feet very rapidly. The autothrottle remained engaged, and as the aircraft approached the level off, it reduced thrust towards that required to maintain the selected speed in level flight. The reduction in thrust caused the aircraft pitch out attitude to reduce. This was exacerbated by trim changes due to the retraction of the flaps from 15 to 5. The aircraft then began a descent, and since it had not reached the criteria for altitude hold, the AFDS, the Auto Flight Director System, remained in altitude ACQ, which I'm assuming is a choir. Uh, the retraction of the flaps from 5 to 1, and then from flap 1 to flap up during the descent, also further decreased the pitch attitude. As the aircraft was descending, the speed increased, despite the selected speed remaining at 200 feet, uh, 200 knots. The crew were assigned several heading changes both before and during the aircraft descent. These instructions placed an additional burden on a crew that was already working hard. Wait a minute. We're supposed to be able to turn the airplane and descend and hold <laughs> yeah. altitude at the same time? What? Yeah. And, and I, in America, every go around is going to have a heading and an altitude to hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because you, you know, you, you're pre programmed go-around track is inevitably going to be overridden by air traffic. Right. So. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, uh, the heading instructions had to be acknowledged and actioned by the co-pilot, which could have distracted him from his monitoring tasks. The commander who was manually flying had to maneuver the aircraft in roll during a very dynamic period in pitch control. Although the crew seemed unaware of the descent for a significant period, there remained further barriers to a continued descent that might have alerted them to the situation. These were the aircraft's terrain avoidance and warning system and air traffic control radar system alerts. In this instance, the ATC radar system alert that was supposed to warn of an aircraft with a rapid rate of descent failed to recognize their descent rate exceeded 2,500 feet per minute for a total of approximately nine seconds. This barrier 
therefore did not function as expected. Okay, another factor. However, the crew became aware of the descent and began to correct it at the same time as the tower controller noticed their descent on the radar repeater in the tower. Both the crew and ATC therefore acted to correct the flight path as soon as it was noticed. The investigation looked at the possibility that the crew were affected by a somatographic illusion as the aircraft accelerated, but although this could not be completely dismissed, an analysis of the uh, FDM data showed it was unlikely. Any nose down force on the controls during the initial part of the go around was most likely due to the aircraft being out of trim, with a large increase in thrust causing a pitch up that the commander countered by pushing forward on the control column. There were no abnormal nose down forces on the controls during the subsequent acceleration during the descent. Then they talk a little bit about the pandemic leading to a situation which was true for most airplane or airlines all around the world, where we, you know, flying was drastically reduced and um, pilots uh, got rusty. Got rusty. Thank you, Liz. Perfect uh, way to describe it. Um, Two engine go arounds in day to day flight operations are rare. With a go-around rate around 3 per 1,000 flights in the UK, the average crew from the operator might have expected to experience one a year when flying at the pre-pandemic rate. Regular practice in the simulator is usually conducted from the approach minimums for regulatory compliance, either single-engine or with an autopilot-coupled go-around available. Go-arounds from higher altitudes on the approach are less regularly practiced. Yes, and they're tricky. It's unlikely that either crew member had conducted a go-around in the aircraft in the previous two years. While the go-around should have presented little problem to the experienced crew, the combination of less than average flying in the recent period and very little flying in the case of the co-pilot, the unexpected large increase in thrust and the changes in heading given by ATC probably combined to overload the crew. Subsequently, they were unable to retain their situational awareness. Changes in thrust generated corresponding changes in the pitch of the aircraft, which together with the pitch changes generated as the crew changed the flap configuration, were not Whoa. dealt with through manually trimming the aircraft. That's a lot of words. It was a lot of words, Liz. Uh, the pitch of the aircraft was not managed effectively by the commander, and the aircraft began to descend. Ah, now I can take a breath. Okay. Um, let Nick Anderson comment. Yeah, Nick Anderson, um, I'm sure that you're chomping at the bit here. Um might have something to say about I, I certainly do <laughs> but well, i'm going to let you start yeah. and i'm going to take yeah, a sip uh, of coffee f- first of all i'm going to have a certain amount of sympathy with the crew because when you are i've been away from flying for a while and you've just done the simulators to try and keep currency up um you when you get into the real aircraft things actually in this kind of scenario are quite different from the simulator for a start the simulator cannot simulate the acceleration forces you feel when you do a real go-around. Because all the simulator does to simulate a go-around is to tilt the box backwards a bit so you kind of fall back in your seat, which makes you feel like you're accelerating, but it's a fraction of what of the force that you get in a real aeroplane. So you're not going to get a somatographic uh, illusion in the simulator, or you're extremely unlikely to. Unless there's something wrong with your <laughs> yeah, inner I hope, ears. I hope you don't get a, that kind <laughs> exactly. of experience. And what's more, the simulator instructors are usually 
they're not like real air traffic controllers where they're going to just completely ignore what you're doing and try and make life really difficult for you uh, and give you lots of instructions all at the same time. I'm not suggesting that it, Aberdeen did this, but uh, uh, th there is an awful lot going on in a short space of time, particularly when you've only got 400 feet between you and your level off. You've suddenly gone to full power, which was a little bit unexpected. They assumed the aircraft would take less power and would only climb relatively gently this is uh, rick's talked about this numerous times uh, the boeing uh, go around system of pressing the toga buttons um once for a gentle climb and twice i think for a full power climb or the other way around i can't quite remember but anyway they thought they'd gone for the the gentle climb because that's all they needed but the airplane went to full power uh, because of the altitude you know apparently that that uh, difference in the type of go-around, uh, you have to be below 2,000 feet on the radio altimeter, and they weren't. Uh, that was a gotcha. They fell into a trap there, uh, and uh, they got a lot more acceleration than they expected. Now, um, the, the reason the aircraft pitched up, of course, is that the engines are slung under the wings in pods, so there's a low thrust line which is below the, the line of the center of gravity, so that force will pitch the airplane up when you put power on, and when you take power on, it'll pitch the airplane down. Um, my feeling, and I've got nothing to base this on other than what the captain didn't do, was that he had, was convinced the autopilot was still in, I think. And when he advanced the power and the airplane pitched up towards the level of altitude, he thought, oh, that's great, that's the autopilot, and doing that for me. And um, in the meantime, he got absorbed with cleaning the airplane up, etc., cetera, uh, pulling some power back because they were accelerating a lot. Uh, and um, the airplane, when you pull power, began to pitch down along with the trim changes that go along with uh, the f bringing the flaps up. Um, so the airplane started to pitch down. Now, he... The reason he didn't manually trim, I think, is because he thought the autopilot was in. Uh, and uh, he was probably distracted from everything that was going on, allowed the height to descend because, because he thought he wasn't monitoring his instruments as if he was hand flying. Now, that's just me, my opinion, so it may not be true. If I'd spoken to the guy and chatted to him, I may have come to a completely different opinion. But I think he uh, pitched up. Uh, thought the airplane was doing the right thing with the autopilot and kind of relaxed a bit and started trying to deal with all the other things that were happening very quickly. Um, and um, the airplane wasn't. It was just going ballistic. But, and then it started to make the top of its parabola and coming back downhill again. He wasn't really paying much attention to it. He was probably trying to work out why the speed was so fast instead of looking at the altitude and realizing that he hadn't even reached yeah. 3,000 feet. He was on his way down to 1,500. So, uh, and that was quite a dramatic uh, error. So uh, he allowed himself to get distracted. Why does your brain not work very well um, in, or his brain perhaps in this situation? And I think his time off flying has had a lot to do with that. There's no doubt about it that uh, after a, a period away from flying, whether you're on leave for two weeks or whatever, uh, the first time you get back in the airplane, it, it can be. a thing. Simple things can happen quite quickly and you sometimes not prepared because it takes you just a little while to get back in the groove. And on a busy go-around, that's definitely something you have to be aware of. Um, so 
even though they had warning and they should have been prepared for the actions, perhaps they even would have had time for a mini brief. Okay, this is going to be a non-standard go around. What I'm going to do is manually select this, do this, have a think about what you're going to do. Perhaps a quick brief uh, to your first officer to, so that you're both on the same page and both anticipating what's about to happen. I think he, like bit like we talked last week about the guy who was had got so far behind the aeroplane, he was hanging under the fin. I think <laughs> this is one of those cases. Uh, and I, I feel sorry for the crew, but as Jeff's almost certainly going to say, we're professionals. This is our job. We're supposed to be able to do this in our sleep. So, um, yeah, I have sympathy, but perhaps not as much as I ought. You have way more than I have. <laughs> um, Nick Camacho, what do you, what say you? Um, well, so I, I just had a couple questions cause I'm not familiar with this setup. Right. Uh, first of all, they're talking about maintaining currency in the, in the simulator. Right. And so for in an instance like that, um, are they just maintaining like the baseline level of currency that's required or are they trying to maintain proficiency with the pilots? And I guess the way that I delineate that is you guys may need to take a simulator ride every six months or have one landing a month. I'm not, I don't quite remember. I know you've talked about it, but your minimum currency requirements, or if these, if they know these guys aren't going to fly for 12 months, will they try to have them in the simulator every couple of weeks to kind of mimic what their standard schedule would look like? Well, definitely not that they can't afford to have yeah, them in that. That's what I figured that often, but the uh, so re- recency as far as takeoff and landing currency is three takeoffs, three landings in a ninety day period. I think that well, it's the FAA. I'm assuming that's probably a, a KO as well. Um, the proficiency, though, it depends on the airline and what kind of uh, at least here in the U.S. Uh, what kind of a, uh, an arrangement they have made with the uh, FAA regarding you know whether you're going to be in recurrent training every six months or every year or in the case of ACME every nine months and it alternates between proficiency uh, recurrent training which I just went through and then the next one will be the line oriented flight training the loft kind of scenario where you get into emergencies and working with the crew and that more real-time simulation and not so much on the maneuvers validation but there is you know, depending on the airline, there is a certain time frame where proficiency is uh, required to be demonstrated by the pilots, uh, but it's not every few weeks. Um, the uh, the uh, well, I don't know if you're going to say anything else, uh, Camacho, before I start in well, my rant. I, yeah, I was just <laughs> uh, the the couple of things that I was um, curious about are. Uh, you know, Nick mentioned that the guy's not looking at his instruments. And I guess um, I guess I would just be curious what he would be doing. Um, it's a two-crew non-emergency situation. Does he have any additional duties? Um, or is the pilot not flying going to be – or the pilot monitoring going to be managing everything that's not associated with aircraft control? Like is there any reason he wouldn't be looking at his instruments? No. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's his one job. Although, having said that, he's also the captain, and it depends on his first officer how much he knows about him and trusts him. He may well be monitoring his hands 
while he's doing flat protections and things just to make sure if it's an inexperienced first half so he doesn't grab the wrong lever or something. So yep. he may be diverting his attention probably appropriately, but, you know, he's spending too much time looking away from the instruments. That's fine if, if everything's under control. And he may have thought everything was under the control because I still believe he thought the aircraft was flying itself, not him. So, uh, yeah. Uh, there are plenty of things that he could be looking down to make sure he's dialed the right frequency in the radio or whatever. And it doesn't take much to consume 57 seconds. Although, to me, it seems like if we had 57 seconds of dead air now on, on this show, <laughs> it would be quite obvious. By the end of it, we'd all be going mad. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, you know, interesting. Captain Nick, uh, your comment about the feeling that you have that perhaps he thought that the airplane was still in automatic mode uh, for the go around. And I, you know, you're probably right because why in the final report would they start off and that, well, their special bulletin, I should, should say this, they start the very first sentence is explaining the dual autopilot capability of this airplane. And when you have, you know, a single autopilot engaged and you're flying a, an instrument landing system, one, you know, cat one, uh, the go arounds are manual. So there must be a reason why they're stating that right off the bat. So you're probably yeah. right. Maybe he did not realize that. And I don't know how much experience this captain had on now, not recent experience, like total experience, but you know, you'd think that they would, kind of know that if this is going to be a go around, it's going to be manual, especially when you click the toga button. Now, as you mentioned, the smart thing would have been, and they may have done this. I don't know. We don't have the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder, or perhaps they don't even have the voice recording, um, you know, from this particular flight. Uh, but when air traffic control gave them that heads up, that should have been boom, red flag. Uh, they're warning me that, something not normal might happen here. And so they, I think they gave him plenty of warning to say, Oh, okay, let's plan on, you know, stopping the approach at some point. Let's talk about how we're going to do that. And if you're only 400 feet below the final, uh, the missed approach altitude, you know, I would say, why don't we just not, you know, let's don't make this uh, the kind of go around that we practice in the simulator where you hit the toga button and you go screaming up and the engines come cogging in and it wants to throw the pitch up and, and then do all these configuration changes. Let's just leave what we have because we're going to get vectored back around for another approach. Leave the flaps where they are, the speed where it is, and just gently, nice rate of climb to 3,000 feet, level fly off, and fly it manually, and then yeah, that's what everything is under control, and it, nobody even in the back probably could would even have realized what was happening. You know, it was like, huh, oh yeah, we're turning again. I guess we're going to, you know, go around for another attempt. And that would be plenty of time for them to get on the PA and said, hey, you know, we have, due to um, a, a certain situation here, we have to go around for another try at uh, landing, blah, 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 whatever. But to just automatically be um, geared to no matter what, the, hit the toga button, 
and then have all these things happen and then like quickly try to reconfigure the airplane and turn and do all these things all at the same time. I'm thinking, why? Why did they do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm thinking, just go click, 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 power up Never, a little bit. Nev is agreeing with you there. And yeah. then climb. Yeah, click, 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 click. Just like uh, children of the magenta. Just climb a little bit, level off, rehook up everything. Now you're back in autopilot mode, and uh, the all is all is right with the world. Yes, Liz, that would that would be the way I would do it. I don't understand. Uh, you know, if you're down close to the ground, that you know the reason why the engines go you know full power. And of course, in this case, he didn't maybe realize or remember that above a certain altitude, that whole one thousand to two thousand feet per minute first mode of the go around. Uh, is not in effect anymore. It's going to go, oh, you're way above the ground, so I'm going to give you full power. Um, I don't know if I really understand that logic, actually. I think it would go the other way, really. You know, if you're way above the ground, why why put in full power? Just give you the nice, gentle go-around thrust, right? I don't know. Uh, I've never flown an airplane that has a dual-mode um, power for go-arounds. Um, so I, I, don't, I really can't say. But, yeah, I think you're right, Nick. The... Um, the captain probably has just assumed that the airplane was still flying the airplane. Uh, the, the autopilot was still flying. And uh, then he just got way behind and, and it just, you know, it was just like a death spiral almost. It could have been a death spiral had it not been for them, you know, realizing that they were heading toward the ground. Now, I don't know. Did I, I, may, I may have misread it, but it seems to me that they were saying that the, uh, the ground proximity warning system didn't activate either. No, I think there's, uh, there's an aircraft terrain avoidance and warning system uh, should have activated and it didn't. And the ATC radar also has a safety system right, built that in didn't that work. didn't activate. Oh, maybe but the it, maybe the uh, enhanced ground proximity warning system didn't work because everything, maybe it was still in enough of a configuration and it was close yeah. enough to the, uh, the airport that it thought, oh, okay, well, it's going to be landing. So I'm not going to give any kind of warnings about yeah. the rain. Or, or they were still relatively high at 1,500 yeah. feet for uh, that True. to go off. Uh, but the ATC radar system is supposed to alert as well in that situation. Hmm. Uh, and it didn't, apparently. But, uh, you know, th they were sort of ways to have saved the situation. As it turned out, the air traffic controller and the crew both realized what was going on before they needed any automatics to save them. So... Uh, you know, they, they twigged it eventually. And I have to say, you know, we, we, we hear about this isolated event, but it, hap it happens probably more than it should to all of the airlines, including maybe Acme Airlines, which is a made-up airline. Uh, but I know for sure that Acme have had some of these types of scenarios where things kind of got all out of whack for something that should have been just so easy just to make it a nice, easy pitch up a little bit, put the power in, make it a nice, easy thing. And instead of everything just went out of control because they tried to execute a go around procedure as if they were just about to hit the ground um, and they couldn't see anything, you know, it's there's yeah. a time and a place for using these kind of procedures. And yeah. Yeah. Now, if this had been an Airbus, it would have been probably no better because the Airbus systems are really quite complicated in go-arounds. Uh, and you know, the simple go-around is the one that happens at minimums, a couple hundred feet above the runway when you can't see the land. Uh, that's the easy one. 
But it's those intermediate level ones, uh, whether you're above or below the acceleration altitude or above or below the go-round altitude, that are the complex ones. And they are the ones that require just a little bit of thought. And funnily enough, they're the ones that actually give you the time to have that little think because, you know, you're not about to hit the ground. You've got plenty of airspace between you and terra firma. Uh, so th there is time just to take that momentary pause, assess the situation, remind yourself just quickly mentally what you're going to do. Uh, if you have time, yeah, sure, do a mini brief. But at least your actions will be calm and measured and appropriate for the situation the airplane's in. Take the pause that refreshes. <laughs> you're very good. I don't know. I, I don't know what. I don't know what that uh, commercial was. Do you remember Camacho? Remember there was something. The pause that refreshes. The pause that refreshes. Coke. Oh, Coke? Coke? Coca-Cola? Oh, okay. Liz thinks it I might be remember. Coke. Anyway, uh, Liz, what do no, you think? Kit I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think Kit Kat. Take a break. Take a, have a Kit Kat. Kat break. Yeah, that's a different one. <laughs> give um, me a break. Give me a break, yeah. Break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> All right. You can send the money to. Are we are we getting sponsorship? Yeah, we now we, maybe. <laughs> um, so I don't know if you had planned for us to do another news item, Liz. No. Uh, okay. Not at all. Okay. Good, because I think that it might be a good time then for yeah. us to uh, head over to the feedback that we're going to uh, do before we do the plane tale and are we not going to do any uh getting to know us oh we could do getting to know us too yeah forgot about that well, just for these two guys yeah whatever well you want it you know what okay no. let's what, what's the feedback you'd like us to do well there's lots of feedback but i i, I thought we could do nigel's quite uh, number six okay uh let me do this captain Incoming message. Going to feedback number six from this guy, this strange guy named Captain Nigel. Um, bang seats. It's not what you're thinking. <laughs> bang uh, you've probably read gaseous articles on this subject. This is the most informative one I've read so far, and this is from the aviationist.com, and uh, it is entitled. Hundreds of military aircraft grounded after potential defects found in Martin Baker ejection seats. Now, this is a little while back. I think they have fixed all this uh, since this article and this issue um, was uh, was uh, discovered. Uh, the company found that some production lots of the cartridge activated actuated devices used in the ejection seats might be defective and therefore needs to be replaced. Hundreds of military aircraft around the world have been grounded after ejection seat manufacturer Martin Baker discovered a potential defect in some production lots of the cartridge actuated device CAD, the explosive cartridges used to propel the seat out of an aircraft during an emergency. The ejection seats are now undergoing inspections to verify the absence of defects before allowing the aircraft to return to fly. CADs initiate a series of automatic functions when aircrew pull the ejection handle to safely aggress the aircraft and deploy the aircraft's parachute. The CAD is inspected regularly and replaced if needed during periodic maintenance of the aircraft that can be affected by environmental and operational conditions. Uh, the first to ground their aircraft were the British, which were grounded on July 22nd, 22 a temporary precautionary measure. Their Hawk T-1 trainers assigned to the Red Arrows and the Typhoon fighter jets involved in non-essential flying activities. The Red Arrows were cleared to resume flying on the same day, while the Typhoons returned to fly this week. 
Also on July 22nd, Germany temporarily suspended flight operations with their Eurofighters because of the same problem, while unconfirmed sources mention a possible grounding of the tornadoes, too. I believe that Captain Nick Anderson is the one that suggested that they permanently ground the tornadoes. Um, <laughs> yes, for on, sure. <laughs> on July 26th, uh, it was the turn of the United States. We're always behind everybody, I guess. As Navair disclosed that the potential defect of the CAS was also affecting the FA-18BCD Hornet, the FA-18EF Super Hornet, the EA-18G Growler, T-45 Goshawk. Is that the way you pronounce that? Goshawk? Goshawk, yeah. Goshawk, yes. And the uh, F-5 Tiger II. Wow, they're still flying the F-5. Wow. Uh, the press release specified that only aircraft equipped with CADs with a limited range of lot numbers are affected. The CAD are already being replaced at the aircraft's assigned squadron, and the aircraft will be inspected before its next flight. Uh, let's see. The release also mentioned that after being notified of the, of the potential defect by Martin Baker, the team at Naval Surface Warfare Center Indian Head Division, which provides CADs, propellant actuated devices, so CADs and PADs for Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps aircraft, used validated radiography procedures to scan on hand inventory to verify each item was properly manufactured before sending to the fleet to replace the existing CADs. Um, Okay, and then uh, finally, I guess the U.S. Air Force grounded T-38 Talons and 76 um, Texan Twos, potentially affected by the CAD issue, out of an abundance of caution. We will not return any aircraft affected by this issue to the flying schedule until we're confident their escape systems are fully functional, said Air Education and Training Command's Air Education and Training Command. Never heard of that. Uh, 19th Air Force Commander Major General Craig Wills. Our instructor pilots accomplish an incredibly important and demanding mission every day. Yeah. And we owe them safe and reliable aircraft. Yeah, you do. And and much more. Uh, yeah. A huge pension. So bunch of a bunch of uh, aircraft um, affected. I mean, the article goes on and talks about some other airplanes that were also affected by the, the CADs. Um, and uh, I don't know what else to say about this. Uh, Nick, uh, Captain Nick, do you have any... Yeah, well, I've got a little bit of background uh, to this problem, uh, and I can't really um, divulge where I got that from. It's a bit unfair, but uh, and I can't uh, confirm it other than they do in that in the last few sentences uh, mention something that reinforces my opinion. Now, um, during the pandemic, um, the Martin Baker apparently um, changed their shift structure. So because of uh, illnesses and because of, um, you know, just they didn't need to have the same uh, shift structured uh, with the change in workforce they had. So um, they, what they used to do was to pack these CADs. Uh, I think one shift would do it completely from start to finish. Uh, and uh, what they decided to do was that it would be allowable for one shift to start the packing of these CADs and the, another shift to finish. Now, I'm not certain if that is true or not, but that's what I heard. Now, let me just explain again what CADs are, because right at the beginning of this, I think there's a little error in the article where it says the uh, the CADs are the explosive cartridges used to propel the seat out of the aircraft during an emergency. Um, the CADs actually are actuators. They're small cartridges which, when they're ignited, 
uh, fire gas through tubes around the ejector seat to set something off. It might be to set off the manual separation. Uh, it might, uh, from the seat, it might be to set off the automatic separation that cuts your seat straps, allows you to fall out of the seat wearing your parachute. Um, th these are actuators that perform functions uh, on the seat. Um, the main gun, uh, I don't think, is called, is a cartridge, a cartridge actuated device. So the main gun is, is, the big long tube that actually fires you clear of the like the rocket uh, aircraft, yeah. Before the rockets ignite and carry oh, okay. on thrusting you. So this is yeah, another so thing that yeah. pops so you out. It does. It pops. It's and about the uh, six fires. feet long. It's a telescopic tube, ah. pushes you out, uh, and then when you're clear of the aircraft, uh, a little wire has now come taut that's attached to the cockpit floor and your seat, and that pulls the sear out that ignites the rocket, and then that carries on accelerating you away. The idea is that uh, in order to get the separation uh, and the zero-zero capability, you couldn't put a huge gun in there because the G acceleration would have caused you a lot of damage to your spine. So they wanted progressive acceleration. So they had a small gun and then a rocket pack that would whoosh you the rest of the distance away. So these CADs are littered around the uh, seat and they activate on time, on altitude, on G and various other things to do the sequence that requires. I mean, command eject uh, happens through uh, one of these small explosive devices. So when one seat goes, the cab will fire and that will initiate ejection of the, of the other seat, uh, that sort of thing. So that's what these devices are. And uh, right at the bottom it said um, the, the CAD's defective part was loose and missing the magnesium powder used to ignite the propellant. So um, it sounds like in the packing, as I mentioned, of these devices, uh, a step was missed. Now, if you're going to get two different shifts doing the assembly of these items, they've got to take over at exactly the point that the last shift finished them. And I s suspect that there was no, uh, the, perhaps the administrative uh, recording of what the previous shift had done uh, wasn't perhaps as accurate as it could be. The handover between the shifts didn't work very well, and a number of these um, small explosive devices were packed and sent off not having been put together correctly now i have a huge amount of respect for martin baker they have enormously high record in recent years they have dropped the ball a couple of times uh, and i hope this doesn't continue because they have you know a history that goes back to world war ii that um, it deserves maintaining, and I would like to see them tighten up their ship a little bit, you know, because this is a, cu a couple of times we've had some problems uh, that have, um, you know, been directly attributable to uh, Martin Baker's, uh, the way they operate. You would think that they'd have some kind of a thing where they pull like one every 10 or one every 30, just, you know, from the, the assembly line and take it I'm out almost and certain them. they do jeff yeah uh, when they they have cute quality i suspect they have a very rigid quality yeah control but it only you know it takes one or two of these devices to get through in a big batch yeah uh and uh, you won't discover that necessarily mm. but then when they're all shipped out and you realize there's a problem you've no idea which ones 
had uh, are, are misassembled. So you've got to recall the entire batch, and that has obviously affected an awful lot of aircraft. Yeah, an awful lot of seats. Wow. All right. Very good. Well, thank you, Nigel, for sending us that mm. article, making us aware of that. And now, Nigel's, of course, uh, very attuned to this because he's banged out of a hawk. <laughs> yeah, he has experience getting banged out. Exactly. And his seat worked as advertised and, and you know, saved his life. So that's fantastic. Yes. Yes. All right. I think we should go to getting to know us. What do you think? That time of the show where we kind of get caught up on what has been happening with the crew between shows. And we'll try to make it quick, but I think that uh, Captain Nick, you should start us off with the uh, Getting to Know Us segment. Oh, most certainly. I mean, I, I just remind you that uh, my lovely friend Rowie, the Australian uh, 380 uh, pilot who came and visited um, uh, last weekend, got safely back to uh, his home base. It was quite a long uh, trip that was because that's a... You know, uh, I think it's a 10-day pattern they have uh, to come all the way out to the UK and then uh, go all the way home again. So he's safely back, which is great, but it was lovely seeing him. Um, But uh, more recently, um, I helped out uh, another podcast. Am I allowed to mention their name? (laughs) No, please don't mention their name. No, please do. Yeah, we'll be mentioning them probably a couple more times. (laughs) I won't mention PTUK, Plain Talking UK. Uh, it's just that every uh, every now and again I do an interview for them uh, because they have got someone interesting, usually with an, a Royal Air Force background, uh, and that sort of uh, is you know, ideal for me to chat to. And the well, you're a, mas- that- you're a master interviewer, so I completely <laughs> I understand so. why. Yeah. <laughs> you are. No, you really are. Oh, that was very kind of you. But I don't know if Chris Burwell, who I interviewed, would say the same. No, actually, we had a, a lovely time. Chris Burwell has just uh, written a book called uh, Nine Lives. And uh, his claim to fame, of course, is that he was uh, a Cold War Harrier pilot and flew from the early marks right to the uh, the most fantastic, um, you know, GR7 uh, that uh, the Harrier um, had uh, was modified into a completely different aeroplane almost fantastic uh, so an enormous amount of experience he uh, commanded number one squadron uh, you know one of the most famous squadrons in the Royal Air Force which the history of which stretches back to the 1870s when they flew balloons which also like a Harrier went straight up and down so you know very clever <laughs> So I chatted to Chris to talk to him about his book. Um, He uh, went on to command RAF Scampton. That was the World War II bomber base that the Dam Busters took off from uh, when they attacked uh, the Ruhr Dams. Uh, And uh, then he left and joined uh, an aviation company called Cobham who provide uh, target facilities for Royal Air Force and Navy and the Army come to that and they do a lot of uh, electronic countermeasure uh, training for those services, uh, as well as doing things like um, they calibrate uh, ILSs on airfields and all that kind of stuff. So he was involved in the management of all that. So very interesting career. It was lovely to uh, chat to him, a very pleasant chat. We had a, a, a very nice, um, uh, you know, uh, several hours uh, talking aviation. Uh, and if you're at all interested, I'm afraid you will have to 
go and listen to PT UK when that comes out. There, there'll be several ones. I also note that uh, um, we've got a picture, or he's used a picture of his Martin Baker tie uh, because he jumped out of a Harrier which had an engine failure. Uh, and uh, he also got, uh, which is something you won't get nowadays if you eject out of uh, modern Martin Baker's, uh, a Caterpillar Club um, golden caterpillar. It's supposed to res, uh, represent the silkworm that uh, made the silk that Irving parachutes uh-huh. uh, used to make their parachutes. Because in uh, older times, um, the Martin Baker seats used Irving parachutes. Uh, and so if you ejected, you could apply to Irving and they would send you their beautiful little uh, golden caterpillar with ruby eyes. Oh, uh, Real nice. rubies. Uh, they're not very big, mind you. But it's a very sweet little uh, brooch, uh, a little gift. Um, and nowadays, I think uh, mainly Aeroconicals are used, and they don't they don't give away little gifts. Mean old Aeroconical. Oh. Um, anyway, so th- that was uh, my day yesterday. And it was lovely seeing Neville again because uh, we don't meet nearly often enough. But we are going to uh, meet again tomorrow because tomorrow is um, the occasion of the funeral of uh, our lovely friend Ivor, uh, who passed away uh, very recently. And uh, if anyone is uh, up near uh, Oswestry, um, there is a crematorium not far from that town where we will all be assembling the details of which are all on Iva's Facebook page, which his lovely wife has kept going, and she has um, put the details of the funeral there, the address of the crematorium, etc. So uh, if you are interested, get onto Facebook, type in uh, Ivor, and I'm sure you'll find him. Ivor McDonald, correct? Uh, I'm, correct. Yes, I think. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yes. MC. Okay. MC, yeah, we had this, <laughs> not MacDonald, but MC Donald, uh, McDonald. Yeah, Muck. McDonald. Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, I hope that, uh, I'm so happy that you and Nev are going to represent our um, our, our uh, respective aviation podcasts uh, because um, we're, you know, Ivor is going to be sorely missed by um, oh, absolutely! Yeah, we miss we we'll miss his feedback, and uh, yeah. you know, knowing that he's keeping an eye on us, making sure we <laughs> keep on the straight and level. Uh, and um, his wife has given me permission to take my camera along and okay. use it. So hopefully next week I'll have some pictures uh, of the service. Very nice. All right. Well, be safe on your journey, and uh, Thank you, look forward so, to it's only five-hour drive. So. Okay. <laughs> well, for you, if it's more than fifteen minutes, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worried. Bit worried, yeah, yeah. exactly. I usually run out of fuel after fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah, because you have the accelerator all the way to the floor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, he drives fast, but I do too. <laughs> all right, uh, Nick Camacho, um, how have you been, sir? Uh, pretty good. Um, got to do a little bit of flying in the Luscombe last weekend. Uh, I had a friend who has a similar airplane a luskin with a slightly bigger engine but we were talking about props and he's thinking about making some changes to his propeller um to what i have on my airplane so i went out and did some flying and collected some um performance numbers for him um to kind of give him an idea of uh what my airplane does and so that was a little different i don't do a lot of precision flying in that airplane yeah (laughs) um 
So that was fun, but that was about the extent of my uh, aviationing this week. Other than that, Mm -hmm. got the kids back in school and continuing to work on uh, work on stuff around uh, around here. My folks' house is fully under construction now, so that's uh, good. Good Mm -hmm. to make progress there. And I uh, went ahead and got my uh, West Coast trip for September finalized. So I will be going out to California. I'll be in uh, San Luis Obispo for a couple of days and then uh, going up to Reno for four or five days and then back to San Luis for a week. So um, that should be good. Cool. Um, We were chatting about Reno a little bit last week. I guess um, I was just going to explain it, I guess, for 30 seconds for, cause I guess it may not be as well known outside the United States, but it's, uh, you know, we have Reno is the Reno air races or the national championship air races. That's a event we have here in the States that is basically pylon racing. So it's the equivalent of like uh closed cir- circuit or oval, uh, car racing for airplanes. They have a big course set up out there in Reno, Nevada, and they race everything from, um, Formula One class, which is a 100 horsepower um, or a 200 cubic inch displacement engine, kind of anything goes, small little airplane. They've got a biplane class. They've got a T6 class. They've got a sport class, which is um, RVs, Lancers, like common experimental airplanes. Uh, Then they've got a jet class where they run L29s, L39s, um, Marchetti S211s. Airplanes like that, so not quite supersonic jets. Um, and they've got the unlimited class. The unlimited class is kind of the uh, top tier. That's uh, mostly um, World War II warbirds, um, large displacement um, piston engines. Are we supposed to be showing some of those slides that you uh... – uh, Well, you could put – yeah, you can start putting them up. I mentioned that our chief pilot, um, Sherman Smoot, flies a Yak-11 – so I put this picture in there. That's a that is a stock Yak eleven. It's basically Russia's equivalent to our T six. Uh, and then if you go to the next one, this is what Sherman's Yak eleven looks like. Um, so that's wow. a uh, oh, wow, that's brilliant. R, yeah, it's a R twenty eight hundred. It's wow. uh, quite a bit different looking than that first one. Yeah. So um, they had to uh, put a bigger tail on the airplane. Um, they were running a big prop. I don't remember if they were running a – I can't remember if it was a Sky Raider prop. But they were running – the propeller that they were running uh, was so big that they actually collared the shock absorbers. So he he was not allowed to have any oh, um, yeah. shock absorption, and he couldn't wheel in the airplane. He had to three-point the airplane because the prop – I was just going to say that wow. the tip of that prop with the tailwheel down <laughs> is very close to the runway. When he – yeah, does what a normal tail wheeler does, stand the tail up. Uh, yeah, he's surely going to hit the prop on the ground. Yep. So they, uh, yeah. So it was, it was always exciting to watch him take off and land. I mean, it was a quite a <laughs> quite a piloting feat with some of the crosswinds they had there in Reno. Um, uh, so yeah, definitely a challenging airplane to fly. Um, but yeah, they've removed. Obviously, they've removed the large two place cockpit. They've put a tiny little cockpit with a turtle deck moved the pilot way back because of obviously the CG of putting the giant engine up front. Um, and then I think there's one more picture there. 
uh, of it in flight, but you can see it's uh, wow! I love really the shape a, of that wing. Yeah, it's really a, an impressive um, airplane. And there's a, a handful of these highly modified uh, warbirds that fly at the front of the pack, and then it also goes all the way back to like bone stock warbirds. Um, so that'll be fun. It's uh, definitely an event that uh, is worth going to once or twice just to hear the sounds. Yeah, I'll bet. All right. So yeah, I think that's all I've got. Okay, cool. Do you want to do yours later, Jeff? Uh, yeah, I can I can save my what's been happening with me uh, for, well, you know what? No, let's do it now. Okay. Let's do it now. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, get my slides up. Um, get my slides on. Uh, so I, uh, let's see, I flew a trip last week and then picked up a quick, uh, overnight somewhere. I don't remember now where that was. Uh, oh no, I did that quick trip up to Newark and back. And then I flew a re- my regular trip, which was another, um, nah, shoot, I'm getting all my trips confused. Anyway, I've, I've been flying a lot, so much so that I just don't know where the heck I am anymore. Um, but I just returned from a quick uh, overnight at the end of my regular trip this week because I had I had to pick up a little bit extra t- of extra time before the end of the month and just went overnight to uh, Memphis and uh, actually deadheaded uh, yesterday afternoon and then flew back this morning but before I so between the two trips um, on uh, I believe it was uh, Tuesday, Tuesday night, night yep. uh, I ended up getting together with Armando. He uh, texted me and said, hey, are you in town? I said, yeah, I just got back from a trip. And he said, "Uh, you want to meet up for dinner somewhere, like a brewery or something like that? And I went, yeah, I do. And uh, he said that he was with uh, Shelby, his first officer, and they were uh, uh, laying over here in uh, in the Atlanta area. And uh, we went to Sweetwater Brewing Company. Uh, Many of you um, especially here in the U.S., are probably familiar with Sweetwater Brewing. Uh, their 420 ale and IPA and lots of other um, beers. And uh, I'd never been to their actual brewery uh, tap room, and uh, so I thought this would be a good time to do that. So there's a picture that we're showing uh, of uh, us in the tap room uh, enjoying some beers, and then behind us you can see, uh, part, I guess, I don't know if that's their probably their their laboratory uh, fermentation room where they where they uh, kind of try out different recipes and that kind of thing I don't think that's their main um, line the, or production the, the amount they produce I don't think they're gonna do it in there no that's not those aren't huge uh, tanks behind there uh, but anyway good good stuff good food and uh, great beer and it was very nice to meet Shelby uh, Shelby is the uh, young lady that is uh, staying with um, the uh, Carrions in uh, North Carolina, and she is the one that's going to be instructing uh, Megan, uh, Armando's wife, in that brand new, well, brand new to them, Super Cub. Uh, So that's kind of neat. Um, And uh, there's another shot of uh, the the evidence uh, that we had consumed a couple of beers. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice the residue, the residue from such beers. Yes. So anyway, it was very nice to uh, meet up with Armando and Shelby. And uh, as I said, the next day uh, went out and did the overnight. And now here I am back. And uh, for the rest of the month, um, probably not going to be doing any more flying until uh, 
the beginning of September, like the 4th of September, I think is my next trip because there are some things happening here in, in the house that I'm in. So we'll uh, see how that goes. Fingers crossed it will go well. And that's it. Good luck. All right. Does Nick want to talk about the cover art? Do you want to talk about the cover art, Nick, from our last show? Well, yes, it certainly won't take me long. Okay. I, it was a bit quick and dirty, really, because mm-hmm. I had just only a few hours to do it before I headed off uh, on interviews and the like. But uh, we uh, had a suggested uh, show title, Hanging On, and this was my interpretation of a, a poor pilot, you know, mentally hanging on because uh, he is... Now, behind the airplane, which is something we often say when you you find that the airplane is doing things you weren't expecting and you're not keeping up with it. Uh, And it's a common problem, particularly when you're starting your aviation career, finding yourself behind the airplane. So you're you're usually back there hanging onto the tail, hoping for the best. Yeah, sometimes miles behind the airplane, it seems. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. But... um I'll do the coffee fund uh, on part two, Liz. So I think now would be a good time to do the old pilot's plane tale, uh, sure. which in this case is the battle above the Somme. Did I say that right? Yeah. All right, here we go. The old pilot's plane tales above the battle of the Somme. The First World War Battle of the Somme continues to this day to fascinate and appall in equal measures. Much has been written about the ground war, the first day of which saw the greatest number of British casualties that had occurred before in the entire history of the British Army. 19,240 were dead and 38,230 injured. The fighting over a 16-mile front lasted almost five months, after which the Allied troops had advanced about six miles. The butcher's bill of casualties was horrendous. The combined Commonwealth countries' number reached nearly 60,000, but was dwarfed by the United Kingdom's casualty number of over 350,000 men. When totaled with those Frenchmen who fell, the Allied number reached 632,907, a number almost equaled by the German losses. As one German officer wrote, Some. Some, the whole history of the world cannot contain a more ghastly world. The battle opened on the 1st of July 1916 with a massed explosion that ranks amongst the largest non-nuclear explosions in history and was then considered the loudest human-made sound to date audible beyond London, 160 miles 261 kilometers away. British tunneling units from the Royal Engineers had secretly completed mine shafts, some over a thousand feet, 300 meters long, that ran under no man's land to finish beneath the German trenches, 
where they eventually laid 19 piles of high explosives, ranging from a couple of hundred pounds, 91 kilograms, to 60,000 pounds, 27 metric tons. The largest, the Loknagar mine, sprung from a tunnel that had been dug to a depth of 95 feet, 29 meters, to avoid the many German counter-mining tunnels that were used to attack them. When the vast pile of aminal explosive was detonated, it left a crater 300 feet, 90 meters across, and 90 feet, some 30 meters deep. An 18-year-old Royal Flying Corps pilot who witnessed the vast explosion wrote, We were over Thiepval and turned south to watch the mines. As we sailed down above all came the final moment, zero. At Boissel the earth heaved and flashed. A tremendous and magnificent column rose up into the sky. There was an ear-splitting roar, drowning all the guns, flinging the machine sideways in the repercussing air. The earthly column rose higher and higher to almost 4,000 feet. There it hung, or seemed to hang for a moment in the air like a silhouette of some giant cypress tree, then fell away in a widening cone of dust and debris. A moment later came the second mine, again the roar, the upflung machine, the strange gaunt silhouette invading the sky. Then the dust cleared and we saw the two white eyes of the craters. The barrage had lifted to the second line trenches, the infantry were over the top, the attack had begun. Next day we were up at 3am and took to the air at 4, dawn over the trenches, everything misty and still above, with the prospect of heat to come, even the war seemed to pause, taking a deep, cool morning breath before plunging into action. We were out to find the exact position at Boissel, for even now, on the fourth day of the offensive, the Corps intelligence did not seem clear on the point. We sailed over the mines and called for flares with our klaxon. After a minute, one solitary flare spurted up, crimson, from the lip of the crater. It looked forlorn, that solitary little beacon, in the immense pitted miles of earth around. We came down to 500 feet and sailed over it, trying to distinguish the crouching khaki figures huddled in their improvised trenches in the khaki-coloured earth. It was not easy. We crossed the crater going north, wheeled south again to come back over it, when suddenly there was a crash and the whole machine shook, as if the next moment it would wrench itself into pieces. I thought I'd been hit by a passing shell. In a flash, I pulled back the throttle and switched off. The vibration lessened, but we still shook fearfully. Now, wet land, 500 feet over the front line, the earth an expanse of continuous shell holes. We should certainly crash, perhaps catch fire right on the line. Such thoughts raced through my head as I looked frantically for some spot less battered than the rest. 
There was a place, right underneath me. I dived at it, and the speed of the machine rose to a hundred miles an hour. Of course, we could never hope to stay in that one green patch. We should overshoot, crash into the trenches beyond. But at 500 feet, there's no time to change your mind. You select your spot for better or worse and stick to it. So we dived. What's the matter? shouted Pip from behind me. Cylinder blown off, I think, I shouted. Undo your belt, I yelled. I didn't want him to be pinioned under the machine when it caught fire, if it did catch fire. By now we were down to a hundred feet, and the contours of the earth below took on a detailed shape. I saw... God be praised, that the green patch that had caught my eye was the side of a steep hill. There was no wind. I swung the machine sideways and pulled her round to head up the slope. She zoomed grandly up the hillside. The speed lessened. Now we were just over the ground, swooping uphill like a seagull on a steep Devon plough. Back and back I pulled the stick. The hill rose up before me, and at last she stalled, perched like a bird on the only patch of the hill, free of shell craters, hopped three yards, and stopped, intact. With a gasp of amazement and relief, for no one could have hoped to have got down in such a place undamaged, we jumped out of the machine. It was Pip's twenty-first birthday. Suddenly I remembered it. Many happy returns, I said. The days of the Royal Flying Corps' dominance with the Sopworth Camel and the SE-5A were still a long way off, and the outdated pusher-driven aircraft of the time, the DH-2 and two-seat FE-2B, were at a distinct disadvantage. The Germans had already developed an interrupter gear that allowed forward-firing guns to shoot safely through the propeller arc. In the Fokker Eindecker, pilots such as Immelmann were able to develop their tactics until they became known as the Fokker Scourge. In response, Trenchard at the head of the Royal Flying Corps stated... Until the Royal Flying Corps is in possession of a machine as good as or better than the German Fokker, it seems that a change in policy and tactics has become necessary. It is hoped very shortly to obtain a machine that will be able to successfully engage the Fokkers at present in use by the Germans. In the meantime, it must be laid down as a hard and fast rule that a machine proceeding on reconnaissance must be escorted by at least three other fighting machines. In response, the RFC introduced formations that allowed aircraft to give supporting fire that deterred many German pilots, one of whom stated, The technique and tactic of the Engländer were verblüffend. The techniques and tactics of the English were amazing, the main principle being that each machine could not look after itself but its partner. Each one therefore protected the other against any attack by German opponents and each pair tried to attack the same foreman. The Englishmen refused to be rushed and their steadiness gave them an absolute superiority. There were, of course, those who felt that the German pilots had the advantage, as a young pilot on 32 Squadron remarked, I know, I feel very uncomfortable with two HA well above me. 
and in spite of the fact that I climbed to about 13,500 feet, they were still above, which is very demoralizing. We shall have to bring out some very fine machines next year if we're to keep up with them. Their scouts are very much better than ours now, on average. The good old days of July and August, when two or three DH2s used to push half a dozen Huns onto the chimney tops of Bapalma no more. In the Roland, they possessed their finest two-seater machine in the world, and now they have introduced a few of their single-seater ideas, and very good they are too. One specimen especially deserves mention. They are manned by jolly good pilots, probably the best, and the juggling they can do when they are scrapping is quite remarkable. They can fly round and round a DH-2 and make one look quite silly. The Bristol fighter didn't fare much better. We could see no signs of the formation, so we made for the lines and picked up three of our escort, about two miles this side of the lines. Of the other escort, we never saw anything, and after waiting about ten minutes, we decided to go over with the other three machines, and as we knew we were faster than they, we were going to circle round after every half minute or so to allow them to catch up. We went in over Pierre St. Vastwood, and we started taking our photographs with two of our machines sitting on our tail, and the third a little under us. It was then I noticed how strong the wind was, which was blowing approximately from the southwest, and which kept blowing us further over. After taking our third photograph, I saw that we had drawn far away from our escorting machines, and so I signalled to Lucas to turn round, and we turned into the wind. It was then, as we were halfway round, that one enemy machine came out of the clouds for our tail. We had to turn to meet him, but as we were firing at him, two more machines dropped out of the clouds onto our tail, firing steadily. The first blew half our service tank away, so Lucas swung around and put her nose down for our lines. I fired away over the top plane, but they did a very good job shooting, and our machine was simply riddled with bullets. Suddenly the machine started side-slipping violently, and at the same time the engine gave a jar and stopped dead. Looking down, I saw that Lucas was bending down in his seat, and thinking that he was working with his switches, I put out my hand to shake him. But then I discovered that he was hit through the back of the head and was unconscious. At this time, we must have been at about 6,000 feet, and so I set to work to try and get his left foot off the rudder bar as she was still side-slipping. This I eventually managed to do, but at this time we were only about 3,000 feet, and I saw the three German machines were still on our tail firing away. I saw that with a headwind and no engine, we could not hope to reach the line, as we were then over Hapling Court. So uh, to avoid the machine guns, we were also being fired at from the ground, I put her down very steeply. Unfortunately, Lucas had slipped off his seat, and when I tried to land, I found that I could not flatten out. The undercarriage was swept off, and she crashed on the wing. I was thrown clear, 
and Lucas was brought in a few minutes later, but never recovered consciousness and died about 4pm. The Germans buried Lucas that night, with due ceremony, in a little cemetery just half a mile outside Hapling Court. A pilot from 22 Squadron described his last mission. I left the aerodrome, carrying two 20-pound Hales bombs. When I reached a height of 8,000 feet, I crossed the German lines in the sector between Albert and the Somme. I remember releasing one of the bombs, but I don't remember the target. From that moment on, I remember nothing until I regained consciousness in a German field hospital on July the 7th. I was wounded by a machine-gun bullet entering my back between the spine and shoulder blade, and it travelled in a downward direction, lodging in my diaphragm. I was unconscious for six days from concussion caused by my machine crashing. His wound was very painful, and to his amazement and apprehension he discovered that he was to have an operation without general anaesthetic. No ether cup was to waft him into insensibility, no chloroform on a handkerchief to dull his brain to the surgeon's knife. In due course, he was dumped onto an operating table and a hypodermic needle jabbed repeatedly into the region of his wound. Local numbness resulted and the German surgeons started in to mend four broken ribs in the gaping hole in his side. A combat report from 60 Squadron described another fight. We were at about 8,000 feet, and just before reaching Cambrai, we were at about 9,000 feet, when I suddenly saw a large formation of machines about our height coming from the sun towards us. There must have been at least 12. They were two seaters, led by one Fokker monoplane, and followed by two others. I'm sure they were not contemplating war at all, but Ferdy pointed us towards them and led us straight in. My next impressions were rather mixed. I seemed to be surrounded by Huns in two-seaters. I remember diving on one, pulling out of the dive, and then swerving as another came for me. I can recollect also looking down and seeing a moraine about 800 feet below me going down in a slow spiral, with a Fokker hovering above it, following every turn. I dived on the Fokker, who swallowed the bait and came after me, but unsuccessfully, as I had taken care to pull out of my dive while still above him. The moraine I watched gliding down, under control, doing perfect turns to about 2,000 feet when I lost sight of it. I thought he must have been hit in the engine. After an indecisive combat with the Fokker, I turned home, the two-seaters having disappeared. I landed at Vert Galant and reported that Ferdy had gone down under control. We all thought he was a prisoner, but heard soon afterwards that he had landed safely but died of wounds that night, having been hit during the scrap. In the churned earth below the aircraft, much of the hoped success of the Somme depended on the accurate use of long-range artillery. 
In this, the RFC was a vital asset to spot the fall of shells, and when the RFC had been unable to fly, artillery commanders anxious to prepare the battlefield had compensated by the expedience of firing twice as many shells in the general direction of the target. This was done in the hope that the greater weight of fire would increase the chance of hitting the target. It had been nothing more than optimism and a waste of ammunition. The Somme was the first large-scale battle in which it could be said that Britain began the full application of its air power capabilities. The Somme offensive was perhaps the starting point at which the generals began to understand the vast improvement that proper integration could achieve. It does not seem unreasonable to suggest that it was the first proper proving ground upon which the formidably effective air-land cooperation seen in the final battles of the war would be built. That was really Psalm's story, wasn't it? Ba-doom, bam! <laughs> you're still, uh, you're still muted, Nick. Sorry, I uh, yeah, you <laughs> didn't hear my mirth and your dad joke comment. No, I think you were laughing really, really hard. That Jeff is really, really clever. Yeah, you never cease to impress us, Jeff. Yeah, not positively, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, wow, what a what um, a, an interesting story, and those those explosions um, just sounded horrendous. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's a fantastic movie about. I think it's the second battle of the Somme uh, where they show the um, the times uh, taken uh, by an Australian group of miners who uh, engineers who dug to lay even larger explosions uh, that um, it was a, a tactic that had been in use in, in almost the Middle Ages when they used to mine underneath the walls of castles. But uh, of course, using modern explosives and things, they could make a, a hell of an explosion. And the idea was that it destroyed the the front trenches and allowed those guys going over the top to run forward through the wire and get to the craters where they were going to then take cover and from there they could attack the second line of, of uh, trenches. Uh, and to a certain extent it worked, but it was never as, as successful as it was hoped. Um, but, uh, you know, the German miners used to dig countermines and then they would lay charges in those, trying to collapse the mines that were being dug by the Allies. It was just a, an underground warfare, and I, it's hard enough being underground in that claustrophobic place without, you know, having the knowledge that any noise you make might attract uh, Germans or you know the enemy to uh, attack your your digging, uh, and you know I just think. <laughs> was incredible and then to find a, an airborne account of what it was like to see these things go off i thought that was that was fantastic and that just led me into uh looking for more combat reports from the somme um you know it's it's i think of it now as as 
being relatively advanced. But you, you forget this was only 13 years after the Wright brothers had first got airborne in 1903. Wow. And this was taking part, uh, in fact, less than 13 years, it was taking part in the summer of uh, 1916. So, you know, what advances they had made in that short time. And by the end of the First World War, you know, they had radios on board. They, you know, the aircraft were pretty powerful in comparison. They had relatively large bombers. The It just shows what can be accomplished when you put the entire country's industry into creating machines of war. Yeah. Incredible. It is incredible. Yeah, you're right. That uh, uh, rapid pace of technological development in aviation is pretty astounding yeah exactly um yeah i mean you think even now you try and build a modern airliner you're probably looking at a larger lead time of yeah that. <laughs> yeah i think you're right yeah okay well i'm glad we had a chance to listen to your plane tale it's always a pleasure uh, a treat when we hear one and it was uh, another well crafted and uh well told story and um look Very forward kind. to the next one and with that i think we'll go ahead and end this part of uh, episode 534 and soon you'll be hearing the voices of a couple of other crew members oh yes but before i go i oh, must yeah. um thank baron von volta oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> who whose voice we heard uh, of course marcus volta from uh uh, Omer Gatau podcast, who very kindly uh, recorded both German and English versions of uh, those uh, spoken words. So thanks very much indeed, Marcus. Sounded like a fake accent to me, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, he did say, do you want me to use my normal accent or pretend I'm... I'm having a dreadful German accent. <laughs> the dreadful said, German the, accent. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I said. The dreadful German accent, please. That was brilliant. And those so English accents were really good, too, Captain Nick. You're, you're getting uh, no, really no, good no, at that. Somebody else did those. Oh, okay. Sure. Gotcha. <laughs> anyway, yeah. All right. Well, have a great second half of the show. All right. And See we you should, next time, Jeff. Yeah, Omega Tau uh, Science and Engineering Podcast, Marcus Volter. Thank you for uh, helping us out. And um, all right, you be safe, uh, Captain Nick, on your journey uh, with NAV tomorrow. And um, we'll, uh, we'll see you all again soon. Excellent. Thanks very much. Well, guess what? From her lakeside studio in South, Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine rated backstabbing jumper dumper, it's Dr. Steph. Kakalaki all day long. I think that's how it goes. Sorry. Got my all day beverage here. Mm. And very excited to be here with you guys. Let's let's get some news and feedback and keep this thing going. Let's do it. All right. And also from his studio. Where is it? <laughs> well, there it is. I see it now. From his home studio in the Valley of the Sun, it world traveler, lost. airplane mechanic, doggy rescue volunteer, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. I second Staffy. Let's get to some news and feedback and be a good one. Awesome. All right. Well, without further ado, let's do the news part two. 
stand by for news. This one is a doozy. Wow. Exactly. An Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737-800 registration Echo Tango Alpha Oscar Bravo performing flight 343 from Khartoum, Sudan to Addis Ababa? Addis Ababa? Ethiopia? Ding. Ding. Oh. I'll take it. Was en route at flight level 370 when the pilots fell asleep. The aircraft continued past the top of descent, maintaining flight level 370 and continued along the FMC route set up for an approach to runway 25 left without descending, however. ATC tried to contact the crew numerous times without success. After overflying runway 25 left at flight level 370, the autopilot disconnected. Pardon me? Slightly high. Which a little bit. A just little a bit little too high. Just <laughs> four, four whites on the pappy. <laughs> not, not a stabilized approach. Uh, the autopilot disconnected. The disconnect whaler uh, woke the crew up, who then maneuvered the aircraft for a safe landing on runway 25 left about 25 minutes after overflying the runway at flight level 370. When asked what happened, they go, nothing. Nothing. What? Nothing to see here. I, I don't know why you would think something <laughs> happened. This was totally fine and expected and normal. That's yes. what happened. They said we were just surveying the whole airport, you know, to make sure everything's safe before we survey the scene. Yes. Survey the scene. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, ADSB data confirmed the information the Aviation Herald received, showing the aircraft maintained flight level three seven zero until. After overflying the runway before the aircraft began to, to descend and maneuver for another approach. On August 20th, 2022, which was just five days ago, uh, as we're recording the show today on the 25th, the airline confirmed the incident, advising that both pilots have been suspended pending further investigation. Appropriate action will be taken based on the outcome of the investigation. Now I hand over the baton to Captain Ricky. He's going to uh, give us a little bit of uh, some perspective regarding this insight, because the reason why I chose Miami Rick is because he... He sleeps all the time on the. Uh, in the I, do, I do. I do this kind of thing all the time. I overfly my destination at three seven zero. We just don't like to talk yes. about it. Well, what, what time of day was this flight? Do we know? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, that is a good question. I don't know. Like what, what? Where were they in their like circadian clock? Unsure. Okay. Never mind. They were in like it's a long flight. I mean, no. I mean, I wouldn't expect this would be a middle of the night type of flight. Well, here, while you guys talk about it, I'll look up the flight aware thing and then I'll have the Z time and uh, should be able to tell us what uh, time it was. Looks like um, uh, 4.20, 3.27, 4.27 a.m., 5.15, 6.15. So, yeah, in the middle of the night. Middle of the night. Was it? Yeah. I think. No. What? No. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what so time zone what, is I don't know. What is CAT Ethiopia? and what is EAT? I don't know what those things are. Oh, those are local times? They I gave think. The times in local times? I think it's, it's Eastern a- African time, I'm thinking EAT, or uh, either that or... Oh, know. yeah. Uh, yeah, it's early. 3 a.m. to 6 Yeah, okay. Six That's 15. local time. Mil- yeah. Mil- okay, middle of the night. Yeah. yeah. So, so early, the very about- early morning. Yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar with that with that time of day. Actually, I prefer it because you get to do the stuff like this. And if if, uh, if it wasn't for ADSB, you'd get away with it. But um, <laughs> I'm just kidding, everybody. I'm just kidding. Well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the, the interesting thing about this this incident is is that we got to talk about about some of the idiosyncrasies of the 737, which as we were talking about before we started recording here, the 737 uh, hangs on to a few things that I don't know why they haven't been updated. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so before we get to this whole thing, we got to talk about basically how is it that um, uh, modern aircraft navigate from A to B. And it's very uh, akin to when you plug into your phone, your navigation app, how to get from your house to, say, the airport, right? So you're going to get a set of uh, directions, uh, points, if you will, that you will follow that will get you from your home to the airport. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll drive out of your house. You'll, you'll, you'll drive on the surface streets. You'll get on an on-ramp to a freeway. You'll, you know, stay on the freeway until you get to the off-ramp, uh, surface streets again, and then you'll finally make it to the, uh, general area where the airport is and go park your car and then you're there. Same thing here. Uh, as part of the, uh, of the pre-flight, you are going to load, Activate and execute um, your your flight plan route, which you'll get off of your uh, flight release uh, manually, or just downlink it uh, by ACARS to your FMC directly. Now, FMC stands from Flight Management Computer, uh, and that is the heart of what's called the Flight Management System, which is a, 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 a basically the brains of the aircraft. It's everything navigational, uh, performance-wise, and other subsystems are controlled by this FMS, and the FMC is the heart of that system. In the FMC, you have um, a couple of subpages. One's the route page, one's the legs page. The route page is just that. That's where you put your route, right? So that's where you're going to put your... Uh, the combination of uh, waypoints and airways that get you from A to B. And then the legs page is going to be kind of like an expanded waypoint by waypoint list of how to get from A to B. Um, um, and for the uh, autopilot to be able to fly this, you have to put the, uh, you have to connect the autopilot to the FMC or the box via an interface called LNAV. That stands for lateral navigation, right? That's basically how you make the autopilot fly what's pre-programmed in your uh, FMC. Now, other airplanes call it NAV. Other airplanes call it managed or whatever it is. But Boeing is, is LNAV, and that is a roll mode. Um, two more things. You have one, uh, one thing called the route discontinuity, which is basically when you have a break in your leg page. So you have you know active navigational waypoints up until a certain point, and then you have a gap um, uh, after that last point, and then the route begins again. Um, what comes to mind, I was thinking about this earlier, and I was like, well, where have I seen a route discontinuity? And then the bell went off, and I was like, well, going into Cincinnati the other day, you load, I think, the Jackie 5 arrival, and the arrival itself doesn't end at the airport. It ends at a certain waypoint, and after that waypoint, the chart says, expect radar vectors to final intercept, you know, whatever procedure to whatever runway, and then you land. And so, there is no way for the FMC to, to, to coat that into your leg page. And so the FMC expects that once you get to that point, you're going to take over um, with another uh, roll mode and navigate the aircraft another way to the following portion of the um, uh, flight plan. And then um, the last thing to talk about is what's called the conditional waypoint. And conditional waypoint is just that, is, is a waypoint that is not defined by a lat long, um, not a geographic position, but is a condition. And what comes to mind is, for example, I remember um, in Mexico City, for example, there was a um, a misperceived procedure where you couldn't begin a turn until you got to a certain altitude because of um, 
optical clearance requirements. And so the, 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 the flight management computer will not command a turn until you get to that altitude, until you fulfill that condition and you can begin that turn. Um, and so with, with the basics of the FMC kind of down, uh, we can go on and talk about the, uh, the primary flight display there, which is the third graph that I have after the two um, approach charts, that one there. Okay, so you have your, that's, that's the primary flight display, and that's, that's a 737 uh, PFD, and I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, airspeed on the left, altitude and vertical speed on the right, compass rows at the bottom. You have your attitude in the middle. You have two crosshairs. Vertical line is a roll bar. Uh, horizontal line is a pitch bar. Along the top, you have um, the uh, what says FCP SPD speed. That is the uh, the status of your uh, auto throttle. The middle portion there is your lateral mode, and the portion on the right there is your pitch mode. Right underneath that, um, that big FD that stands for flight director. And what basically what that means is that you are manually flying the aircraft and satisfying the requirements of the flight director manually. The idea here is to have the cross the crosshairs perfectly crossed, right? So as long as they're perfectly crossed, you are maintaining the pitch required and flying the track required. Right above that is what makes this a 737 PFD. You have little small letters there, uh, CWSR and CWSP. And that, and that stands for control wheel steering. And this is what is um, uh, singular and uh, specific to the 737. Now, the control wheel steering system is something that I don't know why the 737 still has. Um, but basically what it does is it allows you to manually fly the aircraft, um, but with some automation backup as if you were flying uh, an Airbus, right? So what you do is, as long as you have control wheel steering selected, uh, if you pitch the aircraft and leave it there, that pitch will be maintained. The trim will be uh, kept up to give you the pitch that you want. If you roll the aircraft to a certain bank angle and you leave it, the aircraft will maintain that bank angle until you uh, roll back out. Um, so this is not a autopilot mode. It's a f manual flight mode, but it has uh, some automatic, uh, I guess, feature to it. In, in this case, a stabilizer. Now, why is this important? Now we can go to the uh, two approach charts up top there. If you look at the, uh, at the first one and the second one there, we're going to have the first one is the ILS Zulu to runway 25 left, and the bottom one is the ILS Yankee to 25 left. Obviously, they're both to runway 25 left. But the difference between the two is if you look at the ILS uh, Zulu to 25 left, which is what we have displayed right here, you're going to see a bunch of star-looking waypoints to the east and to the west of the field and along the extended center line of the runway. And the ILS Yankee to 25 left, it, it doesn't have that. Um, the difference between both of them is that the ILS Zulu to 25 left has a bunch of uh, GPS waypoints that get you from the arrival uh, portion of the star to the um, initial approach fix of the approach gets you on the localizer down the glide slope and on the other end it gets you to the missed approach procedure which is going to be coded in the fmc if you call up this particular approach 
the ILS uh, Yankee, which is the following one, um, it's the same approach, but the way you get to the approach end of the runway is via a teardrop, which um, old you overfly school. the field. Yeah, old school. You, you overfly the VOR that's in the field, outer radial to a certain distance, and then you come back around, turn back around, descend to the published altitude, intercept a glide slope, and come down. Now, here's the clincher. The missed approach procedure for the ILS uh, Yankee, if you look at it there, or I, I kind of have it highlighted, where it says briefing strip, it says turn left as soon as practicable. Max 185 knots to intercept radial 193 and maintain uh, climbing to 14,000 and right to the hold or whatever it is. So how do you tell the FMC? How do you code that left turn? Turn left as soon to, as practicable. How do you tell it, it to do that? Unless you, you have can't. a, yeah, some other right. point no, you, you say, put in there. Okay, listen to me now. Turn left as <laughs> very soon clear. as practicable. Yes. Exactly. It's very important. So you, very important. Which, which, which brings up the next thing. Um, since the FMC doesn't know when as soon as practicable is, what my educated guess is, is that at that point after the approach, there was a rad discontinuity. Now, mind, now, keep in mind that the airplane never descended. It was flying the lateral track. It flew the lateral track past the end of the runway until it got to the point where it was supposed to turn, make a left turn as soon as practicable. Um, had the crew called up the other approach, had they called up the ILS Zulu to runway 25 left, the aircraft could have maintained the track, kept flying on LNAF, and flown the missed approach procedure, entered the hold, and stayed in the hold the whole time, and the autopilot would not have disconnected. Now, what And then the ATC autopilot... would have been like, what is going on? <laughs> exactly. like, this now, is even are weirder. You, are you sure? Because I mean, I, I, I'm not questioning it. I'm just I'm wondering, because I know the 737 is kind of weird in that if you're flying on single autopilot, which they would be at cruise, uh, if it, if you go around, I don't know if it's when yes, you activate yes. the toga button. So, so, so here's here's I, I know what you're getting. There. Okay, so not so there's, now it's like it's just going to follow it, the it, missed approach. It, it, path. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because okay. the, so the 737 has got two autopilots. Got autopilot channel A, autopilot channel B. The autopilot will disconnect once you hit the toga switch on a single channel uh, approach. Right, so if you if you hit the toga switch on a single channel approach, the autopilot will disconnect, and you'll have to manually fly the go around. If you're flying a dual channel approach and you hit toga, um, the autopilot will not disconnect. You'll get to 400 feet or whatever the altitude is, engage a lateral mode, and once you get to a, to your acceleration altitude, whatever it is, engage a vertical mode and fly that way on autopilot. Not the case in a single channel approach. Now that doesn't apply in this case because the airplane never intercepted the localizer on the glide slope. Oh yeah. Right. And so the active modes were always LNAV and yeah. VNAV until it got to the continuity. Yeah. Now here's where I did a little bit of research because I'm not rated I'm not typed on the seven three. So I had to find out I mean what the hell? Why is it why is the autopilot disconnecting? And it turns out that on the seven three, if you fly if you if you if you hit a rat discontinuity in the Lex page, the autopilot clicks off, and the airplane goes automatically from autopilot to flight director. But it'll give you control wheel steering in the roll mode. So basically, what that yeah. So basically, what that means is that as long as you don't 
enter as long as, long as you don't input any role into the control wheel manually, the airplane will maintain that uh, that that track, which is very similar to what the newer Boeings, which is the, all the Boeings I've ever flown. Once you get to the end of your fly plan in the legs page or a rat discontinuity, the autopilot remains on, but your roll mode is no longer LNAV because you're not following a track waypoints. It turns it goes into heading hold. Now, that's why the autopilot disconnected. Now, the alarm went off because per FAR Part 25, it's required that when an autopilot turns off, it needs to call your attention so that you know that it, that it yeah. clicked off. Good right. thing it did. Exactly, mm-hmm. right. So, which back to ah, the Ah, it's my alarm. Seems like it's time to get up and <laughs> land this airplane. Exactly. Someone make a pot of coffee? Uh, so are you saying which, that uh, basically the uh, pilot screwed up? Well, yeah, I, well, I mean, by falling asleep, yes. And the, the other thing Saying I don't understand, asleep, yeah. the other thing I don't understand is why they called up, why they requ- why they uh, pulled up the, the ILS the Yankee versus the Zulu. A couple of things come to mind. One could be that I guess the GPS receivers in the jet were inoperative. I mean, you can be dispatched without GPS receivers. You just mm-hmm. can't fly GPS procedures or GPS transitions. You can fly GPS um, uh, departures but not arrivals, and that's a whole other rabbit hole that we can't go down right now because we don't have the time. Um, but uh, that's that's my question. Why did they call up the Yankee versus the Zulu for that particular approach? I know. So, I know. Oh, is okay, it? why don't you look? Okay, here's the uh, RNAV Zulu. It looks pretty complicated, and this next one looks a lot easier. <laughs> and it's kind of prettier. It has like a pretty teardrop thing shape on it. I agree. I think that's why that's I wanted to done the same. Pretty sure. <laughs> well, yeah, because maybe the captain was old school. He just wanted to do the teardrop. Could be. Yeah, like one of the, yeah. like Captain Nielsen. Like, yeah, <laughs> we're going to do it old school, damn it. Exactly. Shut up, you little young new generation millennial <laughs> person. Whippersnappers. <laughs> so that's, that's what I have on that. I hope it wasn't too complicated, but that's, I, I, I think that's what happened. I'm not sure. Cause I'm, again, I'm not, I haven't flown the seven three and that is my educated guess as to what may have Sounds good here. to me. Plus they fell asleep. What do you think Steph? And they fell asleep. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. Yeah. I got to do the ding. Uh, uh, forget it. It's too late now. But, <laughs> yeah, no, past. here we go. I'm doing it anyway. There it is. There it Darn is. it. No, oh, look at that. Wikipedia. Oh, oh look at that. The Human is. Aviation Encyclopedia. And I didn't even nah. hit the crickets thing because it, I don't think it was it cricket It really wasn't worthy. crickets. No, it was just not cricket information. Worthy. It was not not like off on a tangent down no. a <laughs> rabbit hole. Of, no, it wasn't. I don't go down tangents. No. <laughs> or rabbit um, holes. No, no. Tan- tangent's the wrong word. It's just, you know, in, uh, we'll say into the encyclopedia. Uh, okay, the depths yeah. of. Gotcha. This, this was, was just was, what was need. you know. What I was trying to, I was, I was thinking all that. How do I keep? Keep it as simple as possible so as to not get the crickets. And I think I succeeded. So uh, mission mm-hmm. accomplished. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, good. Well done, Great. Sir. Thanks, Rick. So glad that you were uh, with us to uh, kind of kind of go in depth there. Yeah, thanks for the slides, too. Hey, um, oh, no. Looks like uh, an Antonov AN-24 a- 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 oh. had a boo-boo. Uh, this is from uh, Av Herald and Ang- Angara Airlines Antonov AN24 registration Romeo Alpha 47848 performing flight 8275 from Irkutsk to Uskut, Russia with uh, 44 passengers and four crew. Wait a minute. Come on. Don't I get a nailed it? Nailed it. Landed at Uskut in uh, <laughs> difficult weather conditions. Difficult weather conditions. That's all we have here. We don't have any METARs or anything. Okay, yeah, well, you know, I fly. In Russia, and, we don't do oh, METARs. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. just difficult it's, weather it's, conditions. Go it's have some vodka. It's already difficult. 
repair your fly jet tomorrow. <laughs> My apologies to all the Russians. That are listening to the Send your hate mail to Dr. Steph at airlinepilotguide.com. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> perfect. So anyway. I heard from the on-the-scene uh, reporters. Yeah. I should yes. let you read the whole thing with that accent. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're going as far as we can without getting in too much trouble here. Okay. Yeah, I need to stop. I need to stop. <laughs> difficult weather conditions struck its left wing onto the runway surface. The aircraft rolled out without incident. Further incident. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. A fracture of the left wing. Hmm. Um, I think you could just cast that and it'll heal in about six to eight weeks. <laughs> no, you cut it off and the new wing grows. Oh, and just cut, like just cut more, cut that much off the other side, and then yeah, exactly. it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It seems like a Three-way long the aircraft, anyway. we're good to go. Don't need that much. What I really like is the Russia's Transport Investigation Committee, Eastern Interregional Department, reported that the aircraft landed and touched the ground with its left wing. What's going on with that nose gear, too? Doesn't that look kind of funky to anyone else? Is that just how that airplane That's probably is? the way it normally looks. Really? But it does okay. look like it's kind of compressed uh, a bit. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, don't I don't... I don't I'm not an not AN24 expert, so... No, I don't, I don't know, know anything about the airplane. We don't have... Yeah, it's, it's broke real Did good. Did it just land on the wing? Like, what... That's, yeah, it, it yeah. touched the left wing first, and that's just mm-hmm. not a good technique. No, no, not, yeah. no. Yeah. Go back to review that crosswind uh, <laughs> yeah, technique. Exactly. Not yeah, recommended. Yeah. No. All right. Well, speaking Difficult. of not recommended, um, oh, I have a video. Let me uh, share that. Of course, I don't have mm. it prepped yet. Mm. That's standard for me. So let me get that video file. Let me snag it. And uh, yes, Liz is singing the Jeopardy, Final Jeopardy uh, theme. <laughs> In the background. Smart so are you going to yep. wager? What is your wager? Uh, where? All of it. Oh, she's going for all of it. Okay. Is this Celebrity Jeopardy? I need to know. Uh, if well, it's Celebrity it's Jeopardy, then we can wait. We can all of wager it. Whatever we'd it's like. It's got to be easy. Okay, it here. could have been a disaster, uh, no. but lots of skill and a little luck Whoa. prevented a real tragedy Ouch. from happening. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Matt Austin. And I'm Lisa Bell. The mid-flight emergency happened Friday afternoon in the middle of rush hour. Quick-thinking drivers on University Boulevard got out of the way so the plane could land. News 6's Troy Campbell is live in the newsroom tonight. And Troy, the pilot has a dramatic story to tell. And very thankful. The pilot of the plane says he had mere seconds to come up with a plan to safely get the plane on the ground. He was bracing for the worst, but luckily walked away without any serious injuries, despite falling from the sky near a busy Orlando roadway. In about 30 feet at that point where I felt that, you know, I could probably, my body could probably take the crash, I let it stall fully. 40-year-old Remy Collin says he was flying one of his company's planes on Friday afternoon. When unbeknownst to him, the aircraft ran out of fuel mid-flight. What? It was four unbeknownst. Unbeknownst. University. Worst traffic. There was absolutely yeah. nothing to land. It Let's was not my, emphasize my the running out of fuel the park. Road. Colin says he had only a few seconds to make a decision on where to attempt yes. an emergency landing. Just miles. Is that specific easy. gravity will okay, always get you. I saw a stretch of 300 feet. There was one red light. There was 100 cars on one side, 100 cars on the other side. So I have incoming traffic. I have a stretch of maybe 100 feet. I said, I'm going to land it there. And then he says the traffic light turned green. 
And with those vehicles now heading towards him, at the last moment, he turned the plane away from the roadway. Okay, where can I crash? He's a hero. The landing is not going to happen. I got to sacrifice the plane. Don't touch a car. Don't go into someone's house. You know, if you've already... And try not to lose too many limbs. As the owner of Aerial Messages and a pilot since 2004, Colin says he's counting his blessings and using it as an opportunity to remind other pilots at his company to to never be complacent. It was a huge wake-up call. It was like, hey, Uh, you're not invincible. I'm human. I make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Slow down. The FAA and the NTSB are still investigating the crash landing, but again, thankfully, the pilot, he was able to avoid all vehicles and structures in the area. Colin says he's already been back up in the sky. He says on Saturday, less than 24 hours later, he flew to South Florida. Live in the newsroom tonight, Troy Campbell, getting results, News 6. Wow. What a hero. I know. I know. That's some silly stuff right there. (laughs) Didn't really uh, emphasize too much the fact that. He suddenly ran out of fuel. Unbeknownst unbeknownst (laughs) to him. (laughs) Unbeknownst. Unbeknownst. So I fly uh, Uh, not not infrequently a very similar Cessna 182, a couple years newer than mm -hmm. this one. Not by much. Um, You're dissing his old airplane? No, I love the airplane. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a wonderful airplane to fly. Um, I would you not, you know, GA airplanes and fuel gauges, really they're only reading a reliable um, reading when they're empty. So I would not rely on <laughs> whatever it day. says during flight um, to, uh, or even if after you turn the aircraft on, um, to plan my, my fuel uh, situation at all. Always stick the tank, know exactly how much is in there, have an accurate way to measure the fuel, um, and do your, your fuel planning calculations for your planned route and duration of flight. PSA. Yeah, and give yourself a little bit of a buffer, too. You know? And give yourself um, a, an, as much of a buffer as you can take on it, in most cases. So unless you're going to exceed yeah. your weight and balance for the mission for some reason. <laughs> Main man Micah yeah. says, he says he's already been back up in the sky because he wants to fly again before the FAA pulls his ticket. <laughs> I think that they might, foresight. they might kind of be frowning on. They might, this they might be bit. asking some questions. Yeah. tell us about your fuel plan. Yeah, what happened there? Did you check and your also, fuel? And also, where was he close to an airport? Why was he well? So he was on University Avenue near the University of Central Florida, not far from where my son had, was living in an apartment on my dime for many, many years. Um, and uh, so I don't know if there's an airport nearby there. I have no idea. Or not. But uh, I should probably take that out and post. Um, but uh, guys, I'm sorry. I just came out. <laughs> It's okay. This is this is like group therapy here. We're, we're all here know, to like uh, support Just one to another. See my and, uh, but the good thing is that none of my family ever listened to this stuff, so it's fine. It's okay. It's fine. Um, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, I, mean, I don't think he was that close uh, to an airport. No, and so what? Uh, I mean, it doesn't look like he was towing a banner at the time or anything. What was he doing at that altitude that would not allow for a sufficient? Um, appropriate force landing. Anyway, I don't know. And I'm thinking that, you know, wearing that T-shirt, you know, of his company was like great brand promotion, except in this case, I'm wondering. I think I'd maybe. Yeah, like cover it up. Hire somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. I'd do that. that And I'd I'd go grab myself a paper bag, cut out two eye holes, and maybe give (laughs) the interview that way. Um, Yeah, my comment would would be no comment. No comment. Not (laughs) doing an interview. I want a lawyer. Exactly. Wow. 
Anyway. Well, uh, glad he lived. You know, that's yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. there's there's positives. Yeah, nobody else, nobody died. Right, he didn't kill anybody. Um, the airplane's or, probably or not reusable, but he didn't damage anyone else's property, and he's uninjured essentially. So great. Yeah. Good good outcome mm-hmm. from that standpoint. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, uh, command decision. I'm going to skip this uh, next news item. We'll move it to the next show, and we're going to catch up with uh, Mr. Miami Captain Rick and Miss. Oh. Dr. Steffi Plummer. Hope you don't mind me saying I that. I mean, it's fine. Okay. Steffi. I love that picture. That was such a good flight. Oh, man. No, Which good one? memories. Yeah, the one oh, from uh, getting to know us. It was, uh, it was a yeah, flight yeah. on, um, it was a passenger flight from Rammstein Air Force Base to uh, Baltimore on a 7 4, bringing a plane full of troops back. It was oh, nice. it was like a party on board. It was a great flight. Yeah, nice. Amazing. The what of yeah. Jeff and I there, I just showed up for his flight. He didn't know I was going to do that. No, yeah, it was a complete surprise. <laughs> it's like, what? And then I stole his hat. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, honestly, she looks better in my hat than I do. Is yeah. my what the heck? Hold on. Do you hear that? No. What was that? Yeah. Something. Wait. Who was that? Uh, I was deaf. I think. Oh. My Alexa decided that we should play Jeopardy because apparently I mentioned it at some point when Liz was talking about the Jeopardy theme, and it took that long. Wow, like, that was very a delayed, delayed response. Response, and all of a sudden there was you know the theme music playing, and I was like. We just talked about where is that? Oh, uh, it's coming. Oh, I tell you, they're speaker. listening to you. Oh, yeah. scary. Oh. Yeah, no. Jeff Bezos is in my house. It's fine. No. Oh, well. Like <laughs> right down the hall, actually. Yeah. I think it's like Hello <laughs> in your bathroom. Just I'm sure I want wow. to know what he's doing that's, here, though. That's personal Amazon service for sure. That's right. Yeah. Super yeah. Prime. Now, if only they could figure out how to read the sign where I asked them to leave the packages at the front of the house and not. The, yeah, with the deer the side I just, of the house. I just I just get them to the airport, and that's. Uh, that's delivery. You know, just out of out of the rain. Yeah, can you yeah. talk to somebody, Rick, about uh, this yeah. stuff? I, I, it's so funny when people tell you, like, so uh, why can't they put the package where I wanted to put it? Like, dude, I don't know. I, like, I, like, I, I have I literally nothing to do with this. I fly not, the airplane. That's not really <laughs> part of my job. It's not, not how it works. But, hey. <laughs> anyway. Well, Rick, if it's not yes, part sir. of your job, what is? What have you been up to? Oh, I tell you what part of my job is. Um, so I was flying um, Miami to Cincinnati the other day, um, and I so I have this thing where you know on 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 Pete the Post-it note, I always have the departure time, and then you are allowed to leave 15 minutes early prior to that departure time without having to talk to anybody. Um, and, uh, before 15 minutes, you have to talk to dispatch to make sure they have a place for you at your destination airport. So we were you know, just, everything was going great. I had a fed on board. He was doing a route check, which, you know, it's never a problem, but what, they're uh, doing that again. Yeah, I know. So no. this is a great, great gentleman. Um, really, really, really cool guy. And I'm not just saying that cause he's a fed. He's a really cool guy. You know, he's a mm-hmm. former AMP guy. So he's been talking a lot of shop and stuff, but anyway, so we're, we're uh, we're getting ready to we're getting ready to um, to uh, close the doors. The dispatcher comes upstairs with a final uh, load sheet, and we do a load verification um, uh, with the uh, with with the load sheet guy here. And when the guy or the gal comes upstairs into the flight deck, that's my, my cue to disconnect external power in anticipation of ground power being pulled and pushed back and all that stuff. So. I transfer to external. I transfer to the APU generator. I go through the through the um, through the uh, uh, load verification 
In the meantime, my FO is sending for the takeoff numbers. All that stuff is fine. And uh, the dispatcher uh, uh, load guy gets out of the airplane, closes the door, and we are ready to go. Now, I go to load the numbers that my FO had worked out. And when I go to put the <laughs> the assumed temperature uh, for my takeoff on the appropriate line on the uh, control display, you know, the flight management system, uh, I notice that it won't take the number in. I'm like, what the? It's, it's not going in. <laughs> And um, I look up at the uh, screen where the uh, engine instruments are, and I notice that I no longer have a target N1 on top of each engine. Hmm. And I'm like, ah, oh, what, what? So I, I, call, I call maintenance. I mean, they're, they're hooked up to the truck downstairs because they're about to push us back. And I'm like, um, I think that during the electrical changeover, the thrust management system might have fried itself or something because I cannot select an assumed temperature. Um, and I cannot, you know, and that, which means that I'm not going to have an auto throttle, uh, uh, functioning auto throttle system for the entire flight. And, uh, you know, and then there's a whole procedure where, you know, they, they get him back. I, I get the maintenance guy back on board. They have to look through the problem, go down to the E and E, see what the problem is, start popping circuit breakers, start, you know, doing by tests and all that stuff. And then they can't figure it out. In the meantime, I don't want to leave much later than I have to, because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, this is a business, right? I'm oh, keeping it all safe and all that. I have a schedule to keep. And so they finally come back and they're like, well, we're going to have to defer it. I'm like, son of a God, now I'm fine. Okay, fine, defer it. But this means that now I have a whole lot more work to deal with because everything that's usually done by the auto throttle system, I'm going to have to do myself, which means setting thrust power, making sure that I don't overspeed flaps, making sure that I stay at 250 below 10 and all that stuff. The airplane is very, very light. And, um, and, uh, so I, I go to one, we taxi off, take off, and uh, <laughs> it was the quickest takeoff run I've ever been on because the procedure says that you're not supposed to do, you're supposed to do a full, a full yeah, thrust no, uh, takeoff. Re- reduced power no, setting. No yeah. reduced at all. And I was, I was very light indeed. So I go to set the power, and just as I'm setting the power, I mean, I have, my foot goes V1, I'm like, really already? Rotate. <laughs> Rotate. <laughs> And then we go up like a rocket, but our initial altitude was only five thousand feet. And in the meantime, I'm trying to clean the airplane up and all that stuff. So that was it was a handful. Well, we got you know, we, and it was just a matter of getting used to it. And I know that there's pilots out there, there's planes out there like the CRJ that doesn't have us an auto throttle system and everything. That's the normal situation, that. right? But that's exactly that's a, that's a normal day to day. Not not. Not, not not so for me. So, uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, it, it worked out fine. It was a bit more involved. Uh, trying to you know keep um, keep uh, airspeed, and once you get up to the flight levels, um, it's a little trickier because you have um, you know a lot thinner air. Uh, since we were very very light indeed, we were up I think like forty one thousand feet, and so I really used that little trend vector on the on the airspeed side of things to try to keep it to, to keep the power where it had to be because you have to you're supposed to go to some chart and, and compare that with the temperature and the and the flight level and the you know, altitude and all that stuff and which, which tells you what your N one should be for that particular weight and level on altitude. Yeah, good luck doing that. Um, yeah, you just kind of put it where yeah, that should work. And then, exactly. no, that's too much. Yeah. I'll pull it back a little bit. And then, and then on the, on the descent, try to make a try to make it. What I did is I, I just stayed higher a little bit longer. Requested ATC permission to stay higher a bit longer, and just basically did a, a, a flight level change descent at idle, what you guys call clamp, you know, with the thrust at idle. Mm-hmm. I kept thrust at idle as much as I could until I intercepted the glass, but then landed no problem. And so uh, it was good. Got uh, got a kudos from the FAA. Got a kudos from the chief pilot, and then I had a beer. So it was, it was a good Awesome. Flight. 
I had forgotten that, that you had the FAA uh, with you. Uh, so that uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's what always. That's happens. when they're always there, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, and, oh, no. It can't just be like a normal. Oh, everything is status quo. Nothing unusual. Nope. 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 Yeah, you really realize how kind of uh, spoiled you are with that thrust management system when it's not yeah. working. Yeah, and then you, you have to go, really oh, yeah. I gotta, but. So, the, so the FAA guy, was a, he was a pilot as well, a retired, retired F, AMP, retired pilot, uh, flew for um, who the, f- some cargo outfit back okay. in the day. Uh, big airplanes as well. Um, DC-10s, though. Thank you. And I, I told him, hey, you're a pilot as well, so just, you know, anything you see, and you're in the smart seat, you have the, you know, the, the best vantage point of it all, so anything you see engine-wise or any other parameter, just, you know, keep us uh, keep us abreast, let us know so that we can make the appropriate correct start. So you make the guy a part of the crew, yeah. put a little bit of responsibility on him as well, and so that, that really did. Yeah, if anything goes wrong, so. it's your fault. Exactly. <laughs> Not mine. We're holding you yeah. responsible, Mister <laughs> FAA guy. So uh, it, it worked out. It worked out. Excellent. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. All right, um, Steph. Yeah. How have um, you been doing? Good. Um, nothing nearly as exciting for my flying this past weekend. Flew both days, jumper dumper operations, but um, I, the weather was kind of hit or miss it was variably cloudy at times so we had to go on some some weather holds when some uh uh more uh, uh broken sky coverage appeared as opposed to just some scattered um puffy stuff for lower lower layers and whatnot um so it made days a little bit i mean they weren't busy days for us but they they did end up being a little bit longer just because we were waiting around for the weather to improve, which it did, you know, at multiple times during the day. So fortunately, we were able to get all of our, our business done, customers taken care of, and do so safely. So that was nice. Um, yeah, just been busy working. Um, looking forward to actually maybe um, not having every weekend completely full anymore. <laughs> um, so I think we're going to have some... Uh, uh, be additional nice. help um, with the the flying operations on the weekends coming up in the near future. Um, so it'll probably put me every other weekend flying, which is is okay at this point. I've been not kind of doing every weekend for the past. Well, not not to say that I won't be doing anything, um, you know, uh, sky related, but it'll just open up some additional um, perhaps opportunities. So looking forward to that. But I'll still be flying a lot. Don't worry, it's going to be at least every other weekend, and probably even more than that. Um, but it'll just give me a couple more weekends per month um, free. Any uh, interesting cloud formation pictures you want to share? No. With no? Okay. no it, was, it was a yeah. pretty bland cloud weekend. Um, they were very flat and uninteresting. Mm-hmm. Um, kept yeah. having this very, very pesky uh, layer at a, right around 13,000 feet. We like to take our jumpers up to 14 if we can get it, but we weren't quite getting there this weekend just because um, mm-hmm. there's an overcast layer there and we didn't want to get too close. Sometimes you can get, you know, 500 feet below it, but in this case, there was some verga associated and you really don't want to drop people through rain because it's painful, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So trying to stay away from some of that. Yeah. So 13, mm-hmm. not yeah, 16? Mm-hmm. 16. <laughs> not <Okay>. 16. <laughs> <laughs> Try to stay away from those pesky oxygen requirements as well. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. But yeah, very, very boring clouds this weekend. I'm not sure what you're referring to. I, I don't, don't know what know I'm referring to either. To. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. Right, yeah. Sometimes they're no really idea. pretty. They're these, you know, uh-huh. very large, towering, cumulus formations, mm-hmm. especially in the distance on summer afternoons. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and they what can be fun to. It is. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Weave, their right, weave your way around them. And, uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh-huh. Yeah, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, control room is uh, trying to get me back on track. Sorry, uh, sorry control room. Uh, she's telling me uh, I should do the co- Anything else that you want to talk uh, about? No, I've got family in town next weekend, and then I'm going to see family the weekend after that. And... Um, then we start to get into marathon season, so Ooh. it's going to oh. be, be busy times coming up. Very nice, very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, mm-hmm. you know what time it is. It's uh, 6.49, which is also coffee fun time. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup a cup excellent singing there liz thank you um so coffee fun it's your way to support our show now people support our show by listening to it and telling others about it uh people send in feedback that's also great support for the show but there's a uh, kind of a minor, small group of people who we really appreciate who support the show financially. And we call it the Coffee Fund Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club. And a couple different ways to join that esteemed group of folks. Uh, one is the Coffee Fund Original uh, or OG method, the uh, PayPal uh, usually used for one time, although people do use it for recurring donations as well. But anyway, since the last episode, George Puttuck, um, Puttuck, 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 I don't know. Who's Liz? You're 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 laughing at me. How do I pronounce that? I'm sorry. Was I laughing? Or somebody was. <laughs> I heard some kind of a sound. It's like Puttuck. I know Puttuck. Uh, George Puttuck uh, gave us a very nice, generous. It was probably the last time he'll send us anything. (laughs) Sorry, George. Uh, Anyway, uh, thank you for uh, taking advantage of the Coffee Fund Classic method. And we also have uh, this thing called Patreon, where you can pledge a certain amount per episode. And uh, we don't have any new patrons this week, but we have a great big group of folks that are uh, loyal patrons and have... um, you know, been very supportive of us over time. So thank you very much. Again, if you want to learn more about how you can join this great group of folks, head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Just send your cash. Captain. Incoming Huh? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I didn't hear anything. Uh, I thought there was like an, uh, the video playing for that news report again. All right. Uh-uh. Um, I was probably just having what, like one of those little minor like strokes. That I okay, minor strokes. <laughs> <experiences>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it does. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I think uh, we should take a look at feedback. Do you have any particular order? Just go start from. Yeah, just attack them from she the- wants us to get to 16 at some point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I think we still have time. To yes. do a few. Uh, let's start with this one. Just received this, I believe, today or yesterday. Uh, this is from um, my favorite Acme flight attendant. Her name, Nanette. And uh, she said, from your Acme cabin crew, 
wanted to provide some feedback related to the Southwest Airlines flight attendant injury and the questions raised about the flight attendant stating that she was in the, quote, brace position. Per our ACME OBM-FA onboard manual, flight attendant duties and responsibilities, all flights, quote, during takeoff, assume proper brace position, palms down on lap, feet flat on floor with legs bent about 90 degrees and head correctly positioned, head back against cushion for an aft-facing jump seater, head bent down with chin on sternum for forward-facing jump seat. And she says, do we always do this? I'll let you answer that question. I think I know the answer. (laughs) Probably not. Anyway, another uh, FYI, the jump seats at the two doors on the Acme 737 fleet are aft-facing jump seats. So we were wondering about that when we were discussing this incident where the uh, flight attendant um, had a spinal fracture um, yeah. and a hard landing in uh, at John Wayne, Santa Ana, um, Orange County. So airport. that makes that makes sense. I mean, so we, uh, you know, I don't know that uh, passengers or even pilots would realize that that's considered a brace position, but it's just appropriate seating position for the type of seat that they're in for takeoff and landing. Um, yeah, Which, I just never heard of it referred I, to. I've never heard it called the brace position, but position. that's that sounds very appropriate, you know. Mm-hmm. Get braced. Yeah. So what she what she was saying was she was sitting um, in the appropriate fashion manner correctly. Right. She wasn't doing something odd like, you know, um, thinking like airplane esque style uh, right. brace positions that was not occurring. The movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was doing what she was supposed to do and still. I guess maybe some people just have a spinal cord structure that's maybe more... Well, no, so it doesn't have to do with the spinal cord in that oh, case. Uh, okay. She had a vertebral fracture, so a bone fracture, right? Well, that's what I um, to say. Yeah. yeah um, at least as far as I remember and understand yeah. from the article itself. Um, those those happen. They can happen from hard impacts. They can happen spontaneously for people who have um, conditions such as osteoporosis, where the bone structure is not sufficient to support mm. its own weight anymore. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't, you know, there's there's probably other medical details there that we don't know, but. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. She ends the uh, communication with me as um uh, I have a bunch of 717 legs in the upcoming month. I hope to work with you on one of my flights. I hope so, too, Nanette. She says, I love you. Take care, Nanette. No, she doesn't say that. I love you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow. You guys have, uh, yeah, I may have read yeah. between the lines here. I don't know. Uh, sorry. <laughs> All right. She wants uh, to get into the brace position. Uh, yeah, now she'll never, ever send feedback again. You're going to be on her do not fly uh, list. I know. Not sorry. Too. It was really. No, no more feedback and no more. It was just meant as a joke. <laughs> Okay, Um, I'm going to share another video file, and okay, so uh, we received some feedback from Texas and LaShock, and he said, uh, you said you wanted people to write to you, so I'm writing you, and then he just put (laughs) dot, 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 well, take care, yeah, well, Okay, technically, you, you did what we asked, but we want more than that. Oh, is that not uh, long enough, he said? Well, in that case, in response to you creating the impression that only Americans go, I offer this video as proof that Canadians also do it, and you have to stick around to the end. 
And so I'm going. So let me set this up. This is a WestJet uh, 737-200, like the original, basically uh, 737s out there. Fly, we we called it the lead sled. Or the flying speed brake. Uh, we had a lot of uh, nice and <laughs> flying speed a lot brake. of uh, yeah. Very, it wasn't very fast because <laughs> very flattering names for this particular flattering. aircraft. A lot of people called it the fluff, um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so they retired it um, back some time ago. And uh, in this video, uh, so there the uh, pilot that was flying the airplane for this retirement uh, fly past, fly by, whatever you want to call it. Um, is talking about that, and we're going to start this video um, at about 53 seconds. So, um, just but I just wanted to give you a little context what they're talking about here, and here we go. Keith and I, about two o'clock on January 2006, we phoned the control tower, and we said, uh, you know, it's two o'clock. Do you guys mind if we do a, a tribute flyby? It was a 737. Yeah, no problem. It'd be a good time to do it. We're not very busy. I said that's great. And uh, the tower says, by the way, would you mind doing a flyby the control tower so that we can take some pictures? I said, boy, this is really going well. <laughs> and then I said, if you don't mind, could we fly between the runway and the taxiway? Yeah, that's no problem, because we want to get a little closer to the hangar. And then I said, uh, or Keith said, how low can we go? <laughs> No lie, the controller says, go as low as you want, just don't hit anything. <laughs> so we take off and we, I think Mark might have this video for us in a few minutes. We take off and we do a flyby, the second flyby, we go by the tower, and they're all clicking pictures of us. On the third one, Keith says, you fly, I'll run the power. That was my first mistake, was letting him do that. He runs it up to go around for us, and we're going downhill. Gear up, flaps up, no guests on board, no baggage, a little bit of fuel. We're booking it. I'm going, yee-haw. Yee-haw. And I pulled it up. I think we bent the wings. <laughs> and I started leaking fuel after that. And I don't think we slowed down until we hit about 16,000 feet. And I'm, we're going ballistic. <laughs> anyway, yee-haw. There we go. Very um, nice. Yeah. Awesome. I bet they had a lot of fun on that one. I think they were having some fun. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Texas and Lashock, for uh, proving that Canadians like to do the yeehaw thing, too. All right. Um, continuing on with... sorry. Pardon me? But then we say sorry afterwards. Oh, yeah. Then Liz says, and then we say sorry after that. <laughs> See, that's the problem. We don't. Yeehaw. Yeah, we don't. Sorry. <laughs> no, we just, hey, no apologies. We just do it again. <laughs> Uh, Tim Qualls, Tim Q, uh, sent this in. I'm sure you all have seen this already, but I, it seemed like this article had some good information in it for a preliminary. And this is from flyingmagazine.com. NTSB releases preliminary report on North Las Vegas mid-air collision that killed four. Uh, this uh, happened uh, when? Uh, pretty recently, July 17. Uh, NTSB report states that the collision happened just after noon on July 17th with uh, Piper PA-46 operating as a Part 91 personal flight and the Cessna 172 as a Part 91 instructional flight. Uh, the Piper registration November 97 Charlie X-ray had been instructed by air traffic control to fly left traffic for runway 30 left 
and the Cessna. This happened, by the way, at uh, Las Vegas, North Las Vegas Airport. Uh, the Cessna was instructed to fly left. I'm sorry. Um, I kind of lost my place here. Uh, right traffic uh, yeah. for runway 30 right. Uh, the NTSB report states the airplanes collided about 0.25 nautical miles, a quarter mile, from the approach end of runway 30 right. The Piper was operating under instrument flight rules and had departed from Coeur d'Alene Airport in uh, Iowa. Uh, Pappy Idaho. Boyd. Idaho. I'm sorry, Idaho. Idaho. Why did I yeah. say Iowa? Well, they both start with an I. Idaho, uh, Iowa. Uh, you know, <laughs> same thing. Uh, Idaho. At least I said Coeur d'Alene, right? Um, Ding. Pappy, thank you. Uh, I'll take that. Pappy Boyenton Field, COE, Charlie Oscar X ray. The uh, no, Echo. The Cessna was conducting a training flight under visual flight rules. The Cessna was in the VFR traffic pattern. By the way, it was a nice weather VFR, VMC. Uh, in the VFR traffic pattern from runway 30 right, flying a right-hand traffic pattern and communicating with the local controller, the Piper was inbound from the north on an IFR flight plan from Coeur d'Alene. Uh, eight minutes before the collision, the Nellis radar tra- approach control, air traffic controller, cleared the Piper for the visual approach and instructed the pilot to overfly VGT, the airport, at midfield for left traffic to runway 30 left. Air traffic control responsibility for the flight was transferred from Nellis uh, radar approach control to the local uh, two minutes later. Within seconds, the pilot of the Piper contacted the uh, Las Vegas, uh, North Las Vegas airport controller, reported descending out of 7,600 feet, MSL for landing on 30 left, and uh, Nellis said to cross midfield. The Victor Golf Tango local controller responded, continue for 30 left. The pilot acknowledged and stated, okay, continue for runway 30 left, 97 Charlie X-ray, we will cross over midfield. Four minutes before the crash, the Cessna pilot short approach, um, and I think that means uh, meant to say requested a short approach, and the local controller transmitted zero Romeo Alpha short approach approved, runway 30 right cleared for the option, which was acknowledged by November 160 Romeo Alpha. Less than three minutes before impact, the local controller radioed the Piper that it is cleared to land on runway 30 left. 20 seconds later, the controller transmits November 7, Charlie X-ray, runway 30 left cleared to land. The pilot of November 97, Charlie X-ray, responded 30 left cleared to land, 97 Charlie X-ray. Uh, then the local controller transmitted 7 Charlie X-ray. I think I said it right. Runway 30 left, 7 Charlie X-ray, runway 30 left. At uh, 12.02, the pilot of November 97, Charlie X-ray, transmitted, yeah, affirmative, runway 30 left. That's what I heard. 97 Charlie X-ray. There were no further transmissions from either airplane. The report goes on to describe the angle of impact, the level of damage sustained, and the final resting position of the aircraft. The NTSB notes that information is subject to change from a preliminary report to a final report, which likely will take additional months to complete. So we had a, a short final collision, and based on what we just read, it sounds to me like the Piper, the twin engine, um, I mean, not twin engine, the Piper Malibu Mirage PA-46, um, must have fixated on 30 right, um, mm-hmm. and they were both going for the same runway, and then, yeah, didn't work out. Yeah. So this is, I haven't listened I'm behind on that other podcast, Opposing Bases, but mm-hmm. this is literally Opposing Bases here. Yeah, you're right. Um, where the term comes from. Yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting Got to be very careful. Easy, easy to see what what happened there, but man, that's tough. 
Not good. Nope. I tell you, the older I get, the more I appreciate Raider vectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. I feel well. Yeah, but I could, I mean, I could see this happening in almost any environment where you have parallel runways, you know, if you have visual approaches happening. Yeah, and, and, and that's just the thing. I mean, in, in, the, uh, in the airliner side of things, I mean, on the airliner side of things, uh, oftentimes ATC will, will, I guess, push you towards accepting the visual approach so that uh, at that point, really, you know, separation is, is up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, the other level of difficulty that that adds is that you're no longer flying the instrument approach procedures, um, uh, missed approach, um, published missed approach. Uh, you get to that point, you, you're, you're now flying something completely different, um, which, uh, in, in which you are responsible for separation as well. And so, uh, I, I, like what, what I'm trying to get at here is that, uh, I will only take visual approaches when I know that I am either the only one around or everybody else is very, very, very far away from me because at the end of the, you know, at the end of the day, um, ATC is there to provide a service and I'm there to keep my crew and my aircraft safe. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is where I really, in the uh, GA environment, I really, really, really appreciate, um, ADSB, um, mm-hmm. and being able to pull that up um, from my Stratus onto my foreflight. And honestly, I fly with it all the time now um, because it's just an extra layer of situational awareness. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, can, you, can, can you remember when we learned to fly back, you know, even you, Jeff, you know, however long it was ago. Like, <laughs> yeah. had to, like, had to, he had to, you know, get the power going with his feet on the, the ground. The right flyer. <laughs> So Jeff, yeah, Jeff soloed in North Carolina. In nineteen oh, December seventeenth. Let me show you my certificate signed by Orville. <laughs> Is number one. <laughs> no, but seriously, back when we were, I mean, I've, I've, I mean, I've been flying what she's uh, over t- close to twenty-five years now, and uh, back when we started flying, you know, NDBs were still a thing. NDB approaches were still a thing. Um, uh, Here's you know, your paper uh, map. Go do some dead exactly. reckoning and pilotage. See those power lines there? That's on your, you know, your list. You Wait, know, ooh, exactly. And I remember, and I remember early on, you know, as 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 a way to um, to uh, build up flight time. I used to deliver airplanes all over the U.S. and go on into airports that. And not, not only airports. I mean, sometimes I'd land in uh, in um, grass fields and all sorts of different places where you're not Yeehaw. never been to before. Exactly. And so, and there was no ADSB back then, and everything was up to you. And uh, I really do. So nowadays, you know, with ADSB and 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 four flight and all these new things, um, where uh, GA really does have have a lot more things than airliners do nowadays um as far as and i mean it's not it's not a a thing to be reliant or complacent on you know but it does add addition you know exactly i used it was useful this past weekend where Mm -hmm. you know i'm with um you know approach control through uh as we're as we're descending and often very good about hey you know there's this additional traffic but you know sometimes they're busy and they're not necessarily required to give me that traffic information. If they're just going to hand me back over to advisory, that's on me to talk to people and see. Exactly. But a lot of times the local traffic isn't on the same advisory frequency yeah. either. So, um, yeah, as I was, you know, fairly rapidly descending, I could see this other Roger Dodger on the screen and, um, yep. able to identify them pretty quickly. But if I didn't have that information, they would have been right in the way of where I was trying to go and planning to go. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, I appreciate yeah. having that information. 
Yeah, it's not perfect. Absolutely. It's not, you know, you can't rely on it um, all the time, 100%, but it's... But it's, more information, the better. Yeah. More information, the better. Form your yeah. essay. Don't worry, Steph. When, when you come over and fly the 7-6 with us, um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, get, we'll have to you catch that. And, uh, okay, good. Thanks. Yeah, we'll <laughs> Easy peasy. Yeah. We're going to jump to 16. Uh, uh, Robert, um, living in Tucker, Georgia... Uh, said, curious to hear the crew's comments on this, especially Dr. Steph. And this is uh, from viewfromthewing.com. Uh, passenger responds to an onboard medical emergency with acup- acupuncture and essential oils. Airlines have medical teams they consult with uh, and people on the ground in, uh, that they call uh, in the event of a medical emergency. Uh, we use uh, STAT-MD at uh, ACME. Uh, they can guide the crew in the air and advise on whether a situation warrants diverting the flight to the nearest airport. The crew will still often ask if anyone on board has medical experience in the event that a passenger falls ill. Uh, the happenstance of a knowledgeable doctor on board can literally be a lifesaver. And I have to give special credit for happenstance. You don't see that very often. Uh, but not everyone who volunteers in an emergency is equally qualified, as this story from an Allegiant flight attendant demonstrates. A woman responded to a medical situation on a flight on Thursday by asking the crew, quote, to allow her to perform acupuncture and administer essential oils. Uh, when they declined, she went to the traveling companions of the passenger in distress directly to offer her services. <laughs> All right. Yeah, She's not going to be deterred. No. I wonder if she off- also offered to bill for her services. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, the crew of this flight had the presence of mind to say no. <laughs> It's not always so easy. Delta Airlines said six years ago that the policy would be to no longer ask for medical credentials after a flight attendant refused to believe an African-American passenger was a doctor. Uh, That's not good. Two years later, the same scenario repeated itself again anyway with a member of the faculty of Harvard Medical School. (laughs) Little podunk school. What do they know? Uh, The first female flight attendant was Ellen Church, hired at United in 1930. She was a registered nurse. And for half a dozen years, this became a requirement, something that lasted at U.S. Airlines in some part until World War II. Aircraft weren't the same smooth rides back then (laughs) that they are now most of the time today. Now we have uh, to luck into a doctor on board, and we hope it's a real doctor, like Dr. Steph. Ding. Ding. Oh, here we go. That's not a ding. Lufthansa reportedly gives out miles, and American Airlines gives travel vouchers to doctors who volunteer. For the miles, I might be willing to respond to the next emergency, too, because while I might not be an actual doctor, it's quite possible that I'd stayed at a Holiday Inn Express the night before, <laughs> given improvements uh, in the in the IHG. They, they have improved one their reward. One Rewards program, actually. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to include that to Holiday Inn. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> and he probably carries there. essential yeah. oils with him as well. So, yeah, just I mean, saying. Yeah, yeah why not? Lavender, you know. Yeah, that's always catcher. Yeah, I have some. I have a few things to say about this. So, I, um, I have um, responded three times now to requests for um, medical um, personnel on flights. Twice at the gate, still or on the ground, which you know. Um, so did you get the points then or not? Actually, the only time I was, and I, nothing was said, the points just magically appeared in my account was the, nice. was one of the times that was on the ground. Yes. Hmm. Oh. Um, the other two times now, um, nothing. Thanks Grateful. Grateful. Um, I did get, a, they offered a free beer one time, but it was like 
two o'clock in the morning and i was like i thanks i'm good <laughs> Don't yeah, it's it. five o'clock somewhere it's crap That's beer. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty good beer but, uh, uh, but light <laughs> we have the next um, so, so one of the things that this points out is that you know they the request is generally for medical professionals it's not doesn't necessarily say if you're a doctor please respond it just says if there is a medical professional on board because you don't know who's on board and um they're not going to they don't give out the nature of the emergency either when they're making the request um you you just want to know what your available resources are really right if you're the if you're the flight attendants or the flight crew um hey we've got something happening who's on board that could potentially help out with this um there have been um the in two of the instances i was involved with there were more than one medical professional on board i was not the only person who arrived um in one case it was a great complement of folks that were appropriate to the situation you know a pretty serious um medical event a cardiac arrest was in progress and um I, you know, I, I deal with spine things, as I think most people know, which is not cardiac arrest on a regular basis, but do maintain, you know, basic life support and recently updated my advanced cardiac life support certifications, uh, actually this past week. Um, so, but we had an emergency do room doctor and also a respiratory therapist that showed up, which was great because that's someone who could help manage airway things and, and take care of that side of, of um you know, anyone with any medical experience, you really don't know what the emergency is until you show up and present yourself and offer assistance and see what, what you know, if you're going to be useful in that situation or not. Um, another time it was a, a pediatric patient and all of us who showed up were um, adult specialists, subspecialists with no pediatric training whatsoever. And somehow I was elected to continue to work on that situation, which, which ended up being fine. Um, and in the other case, I was the only person who showed up. Um, no other medical professionals on board, so or at least none will. They probably to weren't offering Identify or <laughs> that was the one I got the points. Oh, for. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder um, if you go like, okay, uh, how many points are you going to give me if I help out? Yeah, that well, no, and, 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 and honestly, my time. Yeah, honestly, I mean, that's not you know why you you know right. are, are certainly yeah. I think any medical professional or at least anyone um, so doctor. Um, nurse, um, allied health professional of some sort. So even you never know if you're, you know, especially respiratory therapists or someone who works in, um, some sort of more intense setting could be, could be very helpful, very useful. Even if you're, gosh, say, I'm um, just a, um, maybe you don't consider yourself to be a doctor, uh, nurse or other professional, but even folks with, um, basic life support, um, experience or who are in, in, um, acute environments like the hospital where they're expected to have those certifications, you could potentially be very useful. Um, CPR is difficult. Um, doing CPR is very um, taxing on the body and you will get tired from it very quickly. And it's nice to have additional people who are able to perform chest compressions just to swap out. If that's the only thing you're able to help do, if that's what the situation calls for, that's, that's super important. So please don't be afraid to volunteer. Um, outside of the hospital setting or outside of the office setting, your professional work environment, you're covered by Good Samaritan laws. So if you show up and, and offer services within the realm of your training, um, that, that's covered by Good Samaritan laws in this country. I don't know about other countries. Um, but, you know, there's know what your the, the appropriate roles are. If they're calling for a medical professional on board, it's probably something that's at least a certain level of severity or seriousness. Um, acupuncture has its role. I refer people to acupuncture all the time, but it is for non-life-threatening pain relief. Um, 
I don't can't speak much to essential oils. I don't think they're harmful in any way, but I don't think they're going to help someone who's in cardiac arrest or having some sort of anaphylactic reaction from the peanut residue that they touched on their tray table or, um, you know, or maybe just has a, a terrible sinus block. That's not, I mean, maybe a little bit peppermint to, you know, eucalyptus, get the get the sinuses moving a little bit might be appropriate in that situation. But hot sauce. Hot sauce. Is hot good. sauce. Yeah, mm. definitely hot sauce. Good point. Got some so know, you know, know what you're, there you, you, go. you know, if it's, if it's something that's, uh, you have to know what the situation is. Don't be afraid to volunteer. But if you're, if they say, thanks, no, thanks. We don't need your assistance in this situation. You don't need to keep offering your assistance to, um, the person in distress is family members either. Uh, that's what I have to say about that. Well, Neil in the live audience says, more chest compressions equal more <laughs> points. <laughs> it should be like that, huh? Yeah. 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 Well, no, I, I mean, honestly, no one, no one who's offering their services in an emergency situation is expecting any type of um, compensation or, or recognition of any type. It's not what we're looking for. We want to make sure that whoever's having the emergency has a, um, hopefully safe and healthy outcome. Yes. I'm, I'm still waiting for the day that, uh, you know, the PA goes off and is like, well, the captain just had the fish. Does anybody else know how to fly an airplane? I could <laughs> probably uh, <laughs> offer my services and, um, like and yeah. then do the essential oils. Land in, uh, and then it's essential. Yes. There are a lot of people yes. that listen yes. to our show that are, are thinking that that might happen someday and they'll be the hero. Mike had a real quick question. This is like, it's not super relevant, but it'll take me two seconds to address. He wants to know the difference between acupuncture and dry needling. Acupuncture is a treatment that is based on the Eastern philosophy of meridians of, um, I'm probably going to get it wrong. So someone else will write in to correct me, um, energy through the body where you can, um, place needles at certain points through the body to affect a certain change. Sometimes not even at the same location. Um, you know, I had sinus congestion one time and I, had um, one of our faculty who was proficient in acupuncture um, do some things for me. I had like a needle in my my ear and like my hand and other places, and it, I don't know, it helped. It felt better. Um, uh, dry needling is where you're working on actual muscle tension and trigger points Eww. and knots within the muscle. So you take the needle and you put it directly into the spot that hurts in most cases, Jeez. and then you you know you can manipulate it around like to your... get those muscle fibers to no, loosen. Yeah, I'm all right, and oh, it works wow. great. <laughs> There's the dry needle from uh, Steph on the uh, lower Shall right. That's the dry needle there. <laughs> I'll dry <laughs> needle you. <laughs> I've had it done to me for running injuries, and it's wonderful if you're actually treating a muscular problem. There you go. Cool. Mm. All right. Well, thank you very much, Steph. Glad that you were here for that. Okay, uh, we're uh, going to have to start wrapping this thing up. Let's uh, quickly address number five from Gus, and he is uh, from Argentina. Hi, crew community, the, uh, crew and community. This is Gus from Argentina. Remember me? Yeah, we remember you, Gus. Um, it's been, yeah, sun and fun, and I think he uh, had an airplane, like, dismantled and sent down to Argentina and reassembled. So, yeah, we remember you. It's been a long time since my last feedback, which was addressed to Captain Nick, regarding helicopters going under bridges. But we don't want to bring that up again, right? Right. Let's don't bring that up again. Uh, for fellow APG syndrome sufferers who don't remember me, you can go back to episode 320 and listen, or to, listen to dispatcher Mike interviewing me at Sun and Fun in 2018. I'm writing today to let you know that after 20 years as a private pilot, I passed my instrument rating... And commercial pilot exams last weekend. All right. Yay. 
Nice. You can fly in the soup now. All right. Oh, I like the kazoos. Yeah, here's another one. As many of you said in the show, this is a very rewarding rating to go after, and I can't wait to go flying and file my first instrument flight plan. I'm not planning to work as a pilot, but I felt this was a great excuse to keep learning and improving the safety of my personal flights. So if you're a private pilot, I encourage you to go and get your instrument rating too. My next goals are taking an upset recovery training and then the multi-engine rating. I wish you all the best, and if you ever come to Argentina, let me know so we can organize a south-of-the-border meetup. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Happy flights, I'll do, Gus. I'll do the Argentina. grilling. I'll do the grilling. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I miss Argentina. You know oh, something man, about that. good times. A little Let's bit. Let's do one yeah. last one, Jeff. Number okay. 20. We're going to do one last one. Uh, number. Thank you, Gus, for sending in that uh, great... Oh, and I guess I was going to say, that's that's what you think. You're not going to end up doing any work as a pilot, but then you end up with all these ratings, and the work mm-hmm. comes to you. Yeah, you so. think, yeah might as well use it uh-huh. for something. Yep. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right, number 20. Um from Carl. Oh, really? Do I have to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hello. Uh, I haven't heard one way or the other. So does Captain Jeff have any plans to do any GA flying in retirement? Uh, I do GA flying all the time. I'm based in GA, uh, Georgia. Um, the RV purchase probably... Pre- GA god awful. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. She says GA means god awful. Yeah, I do that all the time, too. <laughs> wow. Man, That's the kind of support I get of, from the controller. A lot of confidence in you. I know. <laughs> uh, the recreational vehicle purchase probably precludes purchasing an aircraft, but maybe a club or the like. I know some professional pilots have no interest in other flying, but not sure that uh, Jeff falls uh, where I fall on that yeah. item. Uh, Blue Skies, and again, that's from Carl. And, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me that, and... I I told him I have a lot of just amazing, generous listeners who have airplanes or access to airplanes, GA. And uh, I'm thinking that, you know, I maybe I can just get people to take me up in their uh, GA air- aircraft and fly me around and maybe let me touch the controls, maybe, like sometimes. Just not the maybe. button that no pilot would ever Yeah, just not the button that, yeah, that no pilot yeah, would ever that one. push. We'll slap your hand. No, yeah. no, not that one. Not that one. <laughs> no. Um, well, I've had my hand slapped many times. You can make sure you get thrown out of an aircraft at some point attached to tandem uh, instructor. I don't know. Maybe when I feel <laughs> like I'm getting close to the end of my life, I'll, I'll try it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you never know what uh, what life uh, what lies ahead in life. At one point, I think I may have mentioned it on the show at least once, um, when Steph and I were floating uh, for the big um, solar eclipse, the, so- the total uh, solar eclipse at, uh, what was the name of that lake? Uh, Kino- Kiwi. Kiwi in uh, South Carolina. Um, there was a, a GA airplane that landed on floats and landed in the lake, not too far from where we were floating. And uh, I thought, ooh, now that sounds like it'd be a kind of a fun thing. That's to a great get. rating to do. Yeah, definitely encourage that. I might that. just do that. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah. But uh, right, I think I'm going to focus mostly on uh, doing the RV thing for the first little while, and then maybe after I get tired of that, maybe I'll think about the switch to uh, you know focus more on a GA flying. Who knows? I don't know how how I'm going to feel about you know not being in the cockpit for for a while. So we'll we'll see. But that's the best way I can answer that. You know, I really thought that, you know, before I became an airline pilot, I thought that I would be 
flying trips in my airline life, and then I'd come home, and then I'd, ha- I'd go to my airport and get in my own personal airplane and fly all the time, you know, between trips. But then I realized that when you have a family and you have children and you have a lot of responsibilities and obligations, uh, flying like the other personal kind of flying kind of gets in the way of uh, that stuff. So I thought it was more important to focus on the family. So that's uh, what that I did. Turn out? Yep. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> yeah, it didn't turn out very well. <laughs> I should have bought an airplane. Wow. <laughs> wow, I hope that nobody in my family watches this show. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, we got to wrap this thing up before I get in any more trouble. (laughs) And uh, so that means we're going to uh, see if, uh, well, first of all, we're going to talk about the uh, website, AirlinePilotGuy.com, where you'll find all kinds of Nito Capedro. Is that what we used to say? Uh, probably nobody ever said that. Uh, really cool information no. um, about the you know, community. No. Uh, okay, I get it. I just made it up. I, I <laughs> Clearly. Uh, the uh, information about the crew and the uh, community, which is the most important aspect of all of this. Uh, information about the plane tales and uh, the APG library and so much more. So check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also on social media, and Steph is going to tell us about that. You can head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. Also on Twitter, we're at APG Crew. Individual Twitter handles pinned to the top of that page. And Instagram is APG Crew as well. Um, I'm pretty sure we discussed this before the show actually started, and Hillel is ready and waiting in Jeff's bathroom to discuss Slack. I'm pretty sure. Okay, hello? Hello, it's time for you to tell us about Slack. Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. You know, come on over here and try not to get too much water all over my equipment, my podcasting equipment, that is. And uh, he is going to tell us all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Halal. Sorry, Jeff. I might have used all of your skin lotion. Oh, that's okay. I'll get more. No biggie. Yeah. Get some at the hotel for free. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And let's see. We'd also like to thank again, Liz. Come on in. And thank you for all your hard work. Whoa. Sorry. There we go. The audience is just going crazy. By the way. When we were doing our live show at Oshkosh, uh, nobody really got any applause when introduced, except Liz. Yeah, I know. That's Saw that. appropriate. Yeah, yeah I guess yeah. it is appropriate. So, Liz, thank you so much for all your hard work. We My so pleasure. appreciate it. And I love you, Jeff. You know I'm just jerking I, you. I know, I know. I know you love me, and I know, and I love you, too. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with that... We're going to go ahead and shut this thing down and wish you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Well, I'll see you next time, everybody. Bye, everyone. Yeah, he's up.
Good day. a good, good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies, I helped them to their seats Airline not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly 